Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Soft against my skin. What's that song? I don't care what's right or wrong. What's that? What's it called? Help me, Help me make it through the night. Help me make it through the night. Yeah. I don't One know. Elvis's ballads from the 70s. I, I was watching the da, 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 the Eubank uh, Liam Williams fight on the weekend. I watched that too. And my, my daughter's ill, so she got tonsillitis. Um, so she was downstairs watching it with me, as a good parent should do. Well done. <laughs> watching two grown men battery Two together. grown men beat the cack out of each other. <laughs> but it, it was kind of, you know, I've watched, I've watched fights with professional boxers before. It was nice to have the insight of a seven-year-old girl. Yeah. Yeah. Refreshingly honest. Yeah, very, very honest. The, um, the rendition of Delilah that mm. whoever it was pumped out uh, to the crowd, she literally stood up in her pyjamas and said, we are not here for singing, we are here for fighting. Oh, oh yeah, yeah that was, well that's done. What talking about absolutely talking spot about. on. Eubank comes out, and she went. He looks sparkly and fluffy, because he had on what I would describe <laughs> as a sexy Santa outfit mm-hmm. uh, to enter yeah. the ring. Again, great insight. When Liam Williams was on the uh, ring walk, she said, "What did she say?" She said, "He looks really scared, Dad." <laughs> sure, I watched that fight. I'm not here to slag people out or anything else. Um, well, what are you here for then? <laughs> Not just that then. I understand the bums on seats thing. Yes. And I understand all the sort of uh, accoutrement on the go with boxing. Yes. I thought Eubank Jr. was utterly classless after the fight. And I don't know the bloke. I don't know him. Yeah, yeah um, neither do I. And I thought, well, you know, I can understand all the stuff beforehand. I understand, you know, there's a bit of bad blood there. I understand all that. The fight wasn't a dirty fight. There wasn't 
you know, there wasn't a lot of hitting in the clinches. There wasn't a lot of low blows. There was nothing like that. Yeah, there was yeah. one lot of clash of heads. So what Lima has, has, has lost, not to shake his hand. Yeah. I know they, they couldn't do the interviews ringside because of the crowd, right? Yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah, obviously. It looked, yeah. it looked raucous. Oh, Christ, it looked, yeah, didn't it, Just? Um, I, I don't know if it's ingrained in me, but I, whenever the whistle goes or the bell goes or whenever when anything finishes, yeah, I think you've just got to move on then, haven't you? Yeah. You've got to it touch sad, gloves. It saddens me. Oh, and me, completely. Um, when boxers don't show respect to each other after. And then to say things like... been bad blood. When Eubank Jr. was saying, uh, I could have ended him at any time, but I wanted to punish him. No, you couldn't, mate. I watched it. I watched the fight. Well, you, we weren't trying to knock him out for 12 rounds, were you? No one believes that. Well, it's just really funny to to, to to knock someone down four times and claim you yeah. weren't trying to knock them out. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> Were they just real blips? Shit. Sorry, mate. Sorry. Up you go. Really sorry. Sorry. I'm trying sorry. to Make sure you realise, mate. And I'll, and I'll, this is quite sporty for us. But, um, oh, no. Sorry. I was watching a lot, a lot of ho- hockey fights on the weekend. I went to a bit of a hockey fight wormhole in, in YouTube, Ty Domi and those sorts of people. And someone made a really good point, which I've never thought of before, right? And they said it looks a lot worse than it is with hockey. Yeah. Because when you're boxing, all your strength comes through your hips and your feet. Yes, and you can't plant with hockey. And they said you? when, you're, when you're on skates, you haven't, you haven't got that. So as I'm punching you, I'm moving away from you anyway. So I watched that jab, and what made me think of it was that was the, was the, the Liam Williams when he got jabbed right in the middle of the forehead. Yeah. But he's sort of coming onto it, and they just whack. You put a quick jab out. You almost didn't see it, and he dropped. And I thought, that didn't look like much. And you didn't watch the replay, thought... It doesn't look like much in the replay. No. But when you're putting all that 12 and a half stone through your body into a into a middle of someone's forehead and you know what you're doing and they're coming onto it, it must be like, you know, <laughs> well, I've never been knocked out. I've, I've been knocked out in a rugby game. I've never been knocked out in a fight, but it must be. There must be, there must be times when they're fighting in ice hockey and they're slipping all over the ice. Yeah. That they're thinking to themselves, this must look stupid. Yeah. This is stupid. Darren, we should stop this. Well, they'll know beforehand. They'll, they'll, They'll talk about it and they'll they'll say, you know, are we going to do this early on? Are we going to get this out of the way? Yeah. The one Domi fight, I watched another fight there. I can't remember who was fighting now, but it was like watching those Rock'em Sock'em robots from the 70s. <laughs> it was punch, 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 punch. All, all going to the head as well, you know, one at a time. <laughs> yeah, but that Liam, so the Liam fight, I watched that as well. Yeah. I just thought the singing was appalling at the start, that's all. Well, the number of people, I only found out about the fight, so I forgot it was on, to be honest. People started tweeting me saying I should be singing Delilah. I thought, what are they on about? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah, you're mad. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, shit, the fight's on. So I, I did. I got, I got turned on right before I started, which was good. Although, mate, and I'm not knocking anybody again. There, I, I spent the weekend watching Hearns Hagler. I watched. Oh yeah, yeah. I watched all those fights. I thought this is not, not even. The, it looks like a different sport. And and to be fair. To Chris Eubank, it it looks like a different sport compared to his dad fighting Nigel Benn. I suppose with Hagler and Hearns, though, that you're comparing it to Brazil 1970. Or, no, yeah. but also like Eubank Benn or you know uh, yeah. Michael Watson or those big fights in the sort of 90s as well. Yeah. I, it was it wasn't a fight for the ages, was it? The two two gutsy no. blokes. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Oh, look, if I got knocked down four times in in the middle oh, of Cardiff, I, I would be getting a taxi home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would not again. be yet again. I would. <laughs> Usual place, Steph. Yes, please. Yes, that'd be lovely. They hit me again, really hard. <laughs> Where's it up and outside Santander? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a split in there, Dick. I'm coming home. Didn't see the first one. Uh, I'll have a chat. I think the yeah. fourth one he threw me over, but don't worry. Boxing out of my Bevan, weighing in at two hundred and ten pounds. <laughs> And you always feel I don't like to criticise boxers at a public Me forum. Me either. 
because <laughs> because they're really scary and hard. <laughs> they're really hard blokes. Um, I'm always struck by my my son was watching a bit of it with me because I was on the exercise bike watching the one, and he came down sat on the sofa, and he doesn't he doesn't like it. He's he's not a boxing fan. Yeah, because it's too brutal for him, and he and he, he likes rugby, but there's something about two men, or women these days, obviously, trying to knock each other's literally trying to knock some knock each other unconscious. Trying to brain damage the other person. It is barbaric, isn't it? It I'm is. Wondering. It is. My seven-year-old loved it. I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think my daughter. My daughter just started karate, and she and she enjoys a bit of boxing as well. Loves loves a Cobra Kai. Loves a karate. Yeah. She's the fighter in the family, definitely. Yeah, there you go. See. So she can look after you if you get in trouble in the. Exactly. Pub. She's practicing oh. her uppercuts on cushions and stuff. It was great. Yeah, fun. she'll. I'd uh... live in three or four years' time for Ben to be getting a bit of hassle in, in school. Yes. And him to be not into that sort of thing. Uh, my, my daughter just to walk over and knock someone out for him. Yeah, karate, karate chop him in the windpipe. Oh, I'd, I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, that's that would be great. Wouldn't it? it would be. It'd be great for her. I think for mm. Ben's street cred, having the younger sister or brother defending you yeah. is doesn't work. No, they're not going to say fuck all with the sister around though, are they? It's true. <laughs> you just got to make sure she's in all your classes. <laughs> my uh, my sister my sister got dumped. Or she had an argument with. This is in the past, yeah. I thought you. I thought you meant yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. This is going to pop around some flowers. This is when she was. Sorry, yes. Like, yeah, I feel really bad. <laughs> no, this is when she was about like seven, seventeen. No, no. And we were in nightclub in town in Carmarthen. I hadn't met the bloke in question. Luckily for him. And I, but I remember all her mates coming over and saying, "LL, are you, you going to do anything? Are you going to say anything?" I said, let me have a, go and have a look at him then. <laughs> I walked over to him. I said, which one is he? <laughs> he was fucking huge. <laughs> Crack said, on, son. Yeah, no, well, like, <laughs> he, he can do what he wants. I'm going <laughs> to go and stand over there and pretend I don't know her. He was like a, he was about, he was a big rugby player. He was fucking massive, he was. My sister so, yeah. had a boyfriend once. We didn't get the bus very often. Why was it? I must have been on the bus going to work in Tesco, maybe up in Carlborough's Cross. And he was on the bus, and they'd had a bit of an argument. And I, I had a chat with him. He's a couple of years younger than me, so I'd be about seventeen. He'd be about fifteen, I suppose. And then my sister went nuts to me because she, he must have told her that I'd. Uh, I said, "Listen, if you basically upset my sister, I'll break your legs, sort of stuff. You know, big brother stuff." Usual bus and chat. Then, yeah, she told my dad. My dad was chuffed. That's good. Well, yeah, you're doing his job for him. He's playing golf at the time, so he's <laughs> it's busy. Saved him a job. An ex-girlfriend of mine, her brother was was quite hard, and he had a cold. He had really bad cold, and it had given him a gravelly voice. And before I'd met him, she texted oh, him and got him got him to send me a voice note, where obviously I didn't realise he was ill. But he was like, "Listen." You fuck her a bit, and I will break your fucking spine. I'll rip your fucking spine out. Did <laughs> the East End come out of it? And I was obviously terrified. Wrong end and, of the Lancaster uh, line, yeah, there. Yeah, they, <laughs> they loved it. Thought it was hilarious. Just taking advantage of uh, the fact he hadn't had his morning limb sip. I tell you what, mm. I watched that fight on the weekend again, just going back to that. Yeah. He's looking dapper, old Chris Eubanks Senior, though, isn't he? The sheriff's badge, got... I think, was odd. Yeah, the other. Trying to explain that to my daughter he looked was hard. Dapper. Yeah, he does look dapper though. He's got lovely skin, and I like I like my skin. He's got lovely skin, Chris Eubank. He was one of the few people who would reply to emails when you, as a journalist, you send him an email, and he he'd, he'd like the questions so he could think about them, and mm. then he'd send his replies. But he would always send them um, with the text in green, which always freaked me out a little bit. Were his replies 
written in the way he yes. speaks. Yes. Oh, were they? Oh, yeah. Oh, which was great. You know, just the, the the really sort of flamboyant, overly thought yeah. out, we thesaurus are language. We are pugilists. We we inflict damage upon each other for the the, the entertainment of others. Oh, 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 yeah, right, yeah, yeah, sorry. It's what? okay, mate, it's okay. You can hit him in the face and win, yeah? Reg Gertrude's confused on the ringside. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Bank. I still love him driving around in that big old truck with his big diamond cane and, you know, he had that certain strength. The difference with him and his son, mm. I, again, I don't know Junior, and he, Junior could quite easily knock me out, right? But that's, that's not the point. They both had a certain swagger. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a good-looking boy, his son, as well. But his old man had all that swagger and was really hard and really good. Like some of those, some of those Eubank fights. Talk about oh, a lion, God, yeah. Jesus Christ! The punishment he took and dished out in some of those fights was incredible. I can't I, believe a human being could be on his feet still. I I don't know how the American press see that era in British boxing, but I absolutely love it. Oh yeah, and I love the, the sound of the commentators. I love the fact that they were at places like White Dart Lane mm. as well. There is. Something about a, a British crowd, a British sports crowd, where, especially when it comes to boxing and football, yeah, they just sound different. It's like when you see um, footage of, say, uh, Barry McGuigan at Loftus Road. Yeah. Yes. It just sounds different. Yeah. And obviously in, in America, a lot of the time, those big fights are happening in casinos. And they things. don't sing. They don't... They don't and like, they don't sing and chant It is like a football game, way. a boxing match. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But those, yeah, the Nigel Benn, Chris Eubank... Stuff, especially from the early nineties, yeah. on ITV as well. I mean, there was two blogs who hated incredible. each other, but they never, they always yeah. touched gloves after the fight. Yeah. As far as I, unless I'm seen as rose coloured spectacles. Was it Eddie Hearn's mum who came up with simply the best as his theme tune? I'm pretty sure that over like one of their Sunday lunches, <laughs> that's true. I'm Eddie pretty Hearn's sure, mum. I'm pretty sure. Well, Barry Hearn's wife. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that when they were having Sunday lunch once, she said, "Barry, he should come out to simply the best." I'm pretty sure. I remember Nigel. I remember Nigel Ben going on Barrymore, and congratulating Barrymore on being able to entertain people without having to resort to blue language. I remember thinking, <laughs> you, you knock people over. You entertain people by punching them in the face. <laughs> Whether you call them a dickhead or not is neither here nor there. God, those. I'm going back and watch those ones. They were great fights, some of them. And Junior, I mean, he's very elusive, though. I mean, I'll say that for him. Christ, I mean. He's got great movement. He is good. He's just oh, he's very probably good. not good enough to... He wasn't good enough in that fight to showboat in the way that he did for me. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, just leave that. I don't like that. I don't like it when anyone does that. I, I, no, I, 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 oh, I don't know. I liked it when Naz did it. I used to love that. Love I liked it when Ali did it. Yeah, I love, I love a bit of shuffling. Sugar it? Ray. Uh, oh, that's all. Bit of Sugar Ray Leonard. Bolo Punch. I don't like it when boxers, I really love do it in case it comes back and blows up in their face. Well, my favourite clips are always showboating boxers getting sparked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just Sh- It tremendous. is. Karma is just wonderful in boxing. Isn't it? There's no sport that's got karma like boxing's got karma. You know, you see the weigh-in or you see the, the you know, someone like puts a little headbutt on somebody and you think, here we go. Was it um, Nassim when he came in his American fight? Was it Pereira? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Where he comes in on... Uh... It's oh, either a flying, like a flying carpet. carpet, wasn't it? Yeah. No, but, oh, was it that one? The flying carpet? Oh, he's just like a, he flies in from the top of the MGM yeah. anyway, and it's bloody <laughs> great. However, yeah. he does it. I can't. Remember. It's either on a ring that he sat and he was on. really winding up the American because it was all. It was all sort of. Uh, there's no. There's no two ways about it. There was an anti-Muslim sentiment in America, definitely. Right? Yeah. 
He made the most of that. So he had like the verses from the Quran hanging from that. I can remember it. They, remember those like Arabic verses everywhere? And he was, he really sort of went to town with that. Yeah. But then he got, he got a lesson, old school boxing of Pereira. Yeah. Nice high guard, very, very orthodox. Bang, 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 bang. And there was nothing he could do. And, and, and weirdly, and this doesn't reflect well on, on certain elements of the, of the British boxing public, when he got beaten, there were plenty of people that loved him getting beaten. They were British fight fans. Yeah. I remember he flew out his hairdresser when he was fighting in Vegas. Who did? Naz. And there was a documentary about him which I watched. And he had his hair cut in the way that it was always cut and it always yeah. looked the same. And it looked really like, looked the looked same. Like it cost about three quid. <laughs> exactly. It's like sh- if you could shave the back and sides and just really trim the fringe, uh, the fringe short. How much is that? Yeah. Three grand including the fight? <laughs> what? Are you fight? sure? Yeah, it looked like it cost three quid. It looked ex- to me, it looks exactly the same as it had done before he'd sat in the chair. That's what I mean. He wasn't. It wasn't like Ted Danson fighting, was he? <laughs> <laughs> the hairdresser we'd flown over from Sheffield or wherever it was. The, the only person in the world he trusted to cut his hair said, "What about that, Naz?" And he went, "That, that's perfection." That <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. He's a funny boy. That's the place to be. I mean, Larry Geller, Elvis's hairdresser, was flown out all over the place to look after Elvis's hair. Beckham got Vidal Sassoon to fly <coughs> to his house in a helicopter. To you remember when he when he had the crew cut when he had the what Vidal Sassoon did a crew cut. He flew him in a yeah, helicopter. Vidal, Vid, Vidal Sassoon did that. Imagine he's in the helicopter. He's just going fuck. I've got scissors. Well, do you know what? That yeah, is what shit. I want my I, that is what I want my superstars to do. To be honest with you, mate. What's because that? money's well, money's not. You know, if you've got it, put it back in the system. Don't don't sit not there. Not to Vidal Sassoon. That's not putting it back I, in the system. I just yeah, but I what's, just... what's Sassoon going to do? He's not going. He's not going to put it in some numbered Swiss account. And leave it there. I don't Sassoon is. He's going to spend it on stuff, isn't he? What I just a think gel. Sassoon. That's the one haircut anyone could have done. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I quite like. And to think his old man was a World War One poet. You just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <isn't it? laughs> I'd love it though. I, do you know, like Jason down the road, my, the bloke who cuts my hair, he gets very upset if I call him hairdresser. He's a barber. Yes. But God, he cuts, he cuts a lovely hair, that boy. He does. He, he manages to make my thinning locks look good. You know what I mean? I, and I just think, I know I've made it properly when I can just fly out Jason somewhere on a Friday to do my hair and then go back. Because I, I know that for two days it'll look great. Does it look its best at the point you leave the hairdresser? Yes. Literally, by, by the time I've got home and brushed all the bits of cut hair off my neck, it's yeah. looking... Still looking good, but not looking like it did when I left. Yeah, because my my hair looks at its best about a fortnight after I've cut it. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of similar on that. If I needed to look nice for something, I'd have my hair cut a fortnight before. I had a shave today, and I had a shave for four days. I had a proper like beard going on, and when you leave it a bit longer and then have a shave, yeah, oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Skin's like a baby's bum now. You know, mm. it never gets like this when you just have a shave every day. I don't know. I haven't shaved in years. You had a shave now? I can see you. I know, but you can't. It's, that's just uh, having a haircut and going, yeah, take the beard off as well, mate. And this one, mate Ian, fair play, who said to me, you look like the 70s, but what are you messing around with like, disposable razors for? Get a nice, proper razor blade and blades. So I've been using that for a couple of years now. And saving the planet as well, mate, by the way. I haven't used a plastic razor blade for God knows how long. You know, you know, the, you know the disposable ones? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And plus all the Gillette, all that nonsense, Mac 3s, all those bollocks. All those bollocks. <laughs> well, I don't use them. But- 
I've never understood those sort of ones anyway. Well, 15 go, quid for four blades, fuck off. It's got seven blades on it and the last one cuts it really close. It's like, well, make them yeah. all out of the last one then, you prick. Yeah, yeah make the other six sharper. Yeah, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense or just have that last one. I was going to say how gullible they think we are, but to be honest, to be fair to Gillette, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, really <laughs> gullible is the answer. As if they they have a, like a meeting every couple of years and go, do you know what, another blade would be good. Yeah, we should uh, have an right. eight blader. Obviously, when they started off doing Gillette blades, yeah, they thought we'll rinse these over the next eight years. Within twenty years' time, between eight and twenty years' time, we'll have eight blades on a razor blade. Yeah, they yeah. haven't gone up to eight. Have they? I don't know. Well, there's there's some in daft, but, but they definitely and they always change the holder that. so you can't use the same holder Absolutely. with the new blade. Yeah, 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 yeah. No chance. Well, mate, I just used the old one. I could I could pick up a World War One safety razor. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stick a blade in it, and I'd be off. Yeah, now look at that. Brilliant, lovely. Yeah, you got to take your time. You can't, you can't rush it. Well, what kind of, what kind of shaving cream slash foam slash soap are you using? I either use soap and a, and a, a badger hairbrush. But I'll be honest, if I'm in a rush, I will just ch- chuck a little bit of the shaving gel on there. I don't. Animal. You know. King of shaves is good because you can see what you're doing. Yeah. It doesn't foam. Why do I like that? Because I can't work out what I've done. Well, that's the thing. See, but when you got a moustache, you got to be very careful. The shaving cream needs to be white, so I think, oh, good, I've done that bit. Oh, yeah, but if I do that and I get it wrong, I'm going to end up look like Hitler. <laughs> I used to work with a guy who used to trim his moustache, and you'd know when he fucked it up because he turned up with just kind of a little bit of stubble. Oh, it's horrible. And there's nothing oh, funny. Nightmare. It's when you try to even up the edges because I got like a bit of a handlebar moustache, and you go, shit, that's not that's wrong. And you, and you never notice until you see it on a photograph because everything flips around. Because in a mirror it looks all right, and then you see what it actually looks like. You're like, oh, fuck. Fucking hell. And you end up pushing it up either side. It just gets nearer and nearer to your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's come his head off again. Oh, Christ. Yeah, that's one thing that hasn't come back, has it? Adolf's moustache. He's ruined it, let's tush. be honest. Uh, Magabi aside, very few people have tried it. I'm going to... No, but that was a quite, quite a common moustache style yes. pre-Hitler. It was called the toothbrush moustache. It wasn't called the Hitler moustache. No, I'm... I'm the... <laughs> Pre-Hitler. <Yeah. laughs> okay, good. There's quite a famous photo of Stalin as a young man. Right. Do you know which one I mean? It's it's a very famous photo of him, and he's about, I don't know, early 20s, and his hair's quite curly and it's all slicked back. It's weird because he, he, he doesn't look like Stalin. He looks quite good. Yeah. He, looks, he looks quite cool. And yeah. the haircut he's got... You could get away with that haircut now and no one would go, bloody hell, he's done a Stalin. Whereas if I grew up a Hitler tash, mm. people were like, what point are you trying to make of yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. I've noticed if, oh, the moustaches make it a comeback though, mate. I've noticed a few people with a, mm. with a moustache yeah. these days. Especially you know younger that? men. Yeah, yeah. A moustache has to be brilliant or it looks terrible. Though. Thank you. I think that's the thing. Stalin had a good moustache. I would say a lot of... <laughs> he might have killed millions. But... Yeah, a lot of strong <laughs> dictators had moustaches is all I'm going to say. Yeah. I oh, tell you, I'd love to be a warlord. I tell, I tell you what, a, a good moustache was the manager of Switzerland at Euro '96. Oh, he did, yeah. Who yeah, I a bit think of a, was called a Dick Strawbridge, didn't he? Yeah, huge old tash that was. Yeah, yeah. not a dictator. Well, I mean, I mean, he was, oh, he was a quite dogmatic. Dictator. He was, he was quite dogmatic when it came to four four two. But he didn't uh, initiate any pogroms. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, I've just I've just googled him. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful Tosh. Uh, Arthur George, A R T U R, and then George is spelled George is spelled like George. You can go on the Hall of Fame in the bar. I would actually say that's the best Tosh I've ever seen. Do you know why? Because what? the the gap, the moustache zone between his nip 
uh, between his lip and his nose mm. is very wide but full of tash. Yeah. Okay. So it should if be. You know yeah. what I mean. Russ Francis, uh, Somerset 49ers, he's up there. Uh, obviously, Burt Reynolds. Quite thin Burt Reynolds' moustache, though. Tom Selleck, of course. The absolute Don. Arthur George's one, um, at points, it looks like um, it's covering his mouth like a pair of curtains. <laughs> Oh, mate, Charlie Baker's got a good moustache. Mike Wozniak's got a good moustache. Mike Wozniak's got a great tash, Lovely yeah. moustache. Bad sideburns aren't as offensive as a bad tash. i got a lovely both, to be fair. You have got nice sideburns going on at the minute. Yeah. How do you measure that? Do you go bottom of ear? That is a, that is a fool's errand because your ears your are... Ears that, yeah, I know. So not, what yeah. I do is I get a... Once they're cut in, which they are now, it's fine. Yes. Well, but when I, if I'm growing them in again, I, I usually get a, an eyeliner pencil. That's square. And I just draw well, a line straight you across. Draw a line face. across your face. You draw a line across your face. How do yeah. you know that it's straight? Are you using a ruler? No, I use my fucking eyes, mate. How do you think? <laughs> fucking eyes. Well, I just look in the mirror and draw a straight line across there, so I know that it's straight. It would be exceptional if, by mistake, you used a sharpie or something. It would be so good. That would, that would, that would <laughs> be so good. That would, that would be. Ben, I'm not saying you yeah. should do this. That would be so good. It would. Yeah. I'm going to nick that for a future sitcom episode. <laughs> Co-written by Alice James. It would look. You don't have any credit. Fuck off. I'll sell it, would, it would look nuts, wouldn't it? No one owns a joke. All right, Owen. I found out that he even you know when he called himself a thief of bad gag. Yes. He'd even nick that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Bob Monkhouse line, apparently. I thought fair play. So that's a really funny line, at least. Oh, that's not his either. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Right, first round of clips. Um, let's change things up. I'm going to have a go first because I don't normally go first. I'm going to... Embrace it. Yeah, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going <laughs> to give it a full whack. Um, this uh, comes about as a clip because... When I'm doing my work, if I'm sort of editing this or if I'm uh, writing lectures, I don't really like sitting in the office. I find it, I don't know, it's just not, doesn't really get my brain whirring. So I tend to sit in coffee shops around the campus. Mm. Um, and one of the uh, coffee shops that I sit in is over in the National Indoor Athletic Centre uh, on the campus uh, at Cardiff Met. And you kind of bump into people and chat to people randomly there. And... A few of the guys who are Great Britain level throwers and you know Commonwealth Games level throwers are big fans of the pod. So we got chatting the other day to a few of those boys and talking about their training techniques because I don't know anything about how you train how to be a 
I don't know, a shot putter or a, a discus thrower or a hammer thrower. I just kind of assume you've got to be some sort of massive dude who can just chuck stuff. Um, and I don't think it is, as it turns out, unsurprisingly, as basic as that, really. Um, so they were showing me a couple of clips of people. Um, so Ben Hawkes is the guy who sent me this one over. He's a hammer thrower for Great Britain, strength and conditioning student uh, at the university as well. So I was chatting with him and with um, a guy called uh, Harrison Walsh, who's a discus thrower. Uh, in, well, he's in the Paralympics. He got injured before the Paralympics, so he couldn't compete. But both really nice guys, both chatting through their training regimes. And they sent me this clip of a guy who's a Swiss shot putter, who's a uh, world champion called Werner Gunthor. And this is him in training. And when you watch it, you've got to bear in mind that he is six foot seven and kind of around 290 pounds. He's huge. I mean, when I watched that, my, my, my first impression of that was, I cannot believe, I know this is, I hate to bang, bang on about this sort of stuff, that the NFL didn't ever pick you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few people to be have that, that big the and that comments. strong and that explosive, he's a freak of nature, isn't he? Also, I, well, I was thinking when I was watching it, it is so impressive. Shoulders on him. It's so impressive the way there's jumping. Well, that plyometric stuff is crazy what he's doing. Yeah. To, to, to move that much heft. He does the one where he does the two high boxes. Yeah. And then I think he bounds straight into three, is it three hurdles? Yeah. And, and then, then he's got the, the steps. steps to the end of the gym that he sort of takes up four at a time. I thought, Christ, on a, I mean, that is proper functional strength. You know what I mean? Also, when I was watching that, and it's, it's such a, an, an impressive feat, I was thinking when he was at school, Mm. Mixability P lessons. Can you imagine how difficult it was <laughs> to play him in any sport? He would have been an absolute beast at rugby, football. What did he because win? He, what he did can he obviously do it all? He won three world championships. He never won Olympic gold. He got Olympic bronze, but he won uh, three world championships in the shot put. How big would those weights be that he's doing at the start? Because it just big. looks like he's just holding nothing on him. Well, mate, I was watching the squat. Yeah. Any time, any time a seven foot Olympic bar is bending, you've got a lot of weight on there. And he was do, he was doing the explosive stuff, doing his cleans and doing his clean and jerks and whatever. I love watching training and seeing how people train. Yeah. Seeing things I've never seen yeah, before. Yeah, me too. He's doing one where his trainer's holding his legs and he's doing like a hyper extension over the top of the the boxes, but with like a, a sort of lat row as well. So he's got the barbell. He's, he's hung over the boxes. He's holding the barbell at arm's length. He then sort of brings his whole body up hyperextension, and then does a row to the chest and then goes down again. I thought, Christ, that, I mean, that, that'll be hard enough with no weight on there. I don't know what he got on there. I think his bench looks like he's about, these days it's easy. It's all like reds are 25s, blues are 20s, yeah. you know. It looks like about 160, 170 K on a bench, which is very good, you know. It's the one where he's uh, he's got the barbell on his shoulders and he's doing those weird sort of Just lunges. Side lunges. Side, yeah. yeah. Look at his knees. That's what I was thinking, thinking, Christ, I'm going to Like a yoga th- or like a, you know, like a Mr. Motivator kind of thing. The other thing I thought about watching that, an absolute luxury. Like the, the only time in my life I've been in really top nick, and it wasn't in rugby, it was when I was living in Bath, is when I had a training partner, a good training partner, my mate James, and we trained every day at Bath University Gym. And we just, we didn't have any of the same interests. We weren't the same personality type. We weren't the same shape. We were very, very different people. Almost never hung out socially. But training-wise, it was just 
the perfect training partner for me. And I was a perfect training partner for him. And it was weird to get in that situation where you're with somebody that's pushing you to your... To, and knows where your limit is. They know when you're just knackered. And they know when you've got another two reps in you. So I was watching that bloke with his trainer thinking, it must be so nice to be able to do that. Five, six hours. I'm not sure I worked in those days. I'm sorry, you probably would have been an amateur. But every day to work with somebody whose only job is to make you be the best you can be. I don't know if the boys there. So the boys in it, the Met staff. Yeah. Will they have... Like when I was there, if you're doing athletics, you don't mind have Keith Lancey and there'd be 30 people in a class, right? Yeah. I, I imagine the boys there now are getting, and the girls are getting one-to-one and small group yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, the, the, I think Ben's on a strength and conditioning kind of course, and then there's a group of them. Um, so there's a lad called Harrison, who's a Paralympic thrower. Alex Sean Davis is part of that gang as well. So there's a whole group of them there who are throwers. I just kind of had no concept of what training would be for that. Yeah. I just thought, you know, you throw stuff and... You lift weights and presumably eat lots. They're just some of the most, you know, explosive people that you'll see. And I, I had no concept of how, because Harrison used to be a rugby player, and he's right. kind of now a Paralympic thrower. He was saying that the difference between doing everything at eighty percent, if you like, for rugby, yeah, yeah, and doing something at a hundred percent for this is massive in terms of his training. And I. No concept of it at all. And you've got two. What's the, what's the circle? Two meters. I mean, that's it. You've got six feet, and you've got to get it. You've got to get it dead right then. And you've got to go from nothing to maximum in less than a second. The bit on one of the other videos of him practicing and training, where he's sort of going along that pole, mm. and he's sort of just shifting yeah. his body weight along it. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. And then they show sort of how he then moves across the circle. You're like flipping heck. And when he's sprinting and and doing the hurdles. Yeah. That's insane because I don't know what time he's doing there, but that looks fast. <laughs> yeah, it's good technique. I must, I must admit, I, I had probably done shot put as a disservice, a disservice in that I thought it was just the big strong boys well, yeah. who did shot put. I didn't think that they were these all-round athletes like he clearly was. I wonder what shape he's in now. He's 60 now. We've talked about athletics before here, right? And it's only, it's only when you see it in the real world that you realise these things. When you dedicate yourself to something, how much the human body can actually do. If, that's, if you're doing... A specific, if you're doing a long jump or a triple jump or, you know, or in this case, a shot put. I mean, he, he's putting about 22 and a half metres, I think, around that sort of mark. Yeah. yeah. Go and stand on a rugby pitch, right? Stand on a try line, have a look where the 22 metre line is. Then pick up uh, a 7.5k, 8k dumbbell from your gym. And then without throwing it, you've got to, you've got to push it. Remember, you can't, just, you can't underarm it, you can't overarm it. You've got yeah. to push it. Imagine pushing that dumbbell and to land in over the 22-metre line. And that's what they're doing. It's a, it's a crazy distance to look at it. That's insane. Oh, it's mad. It's almost chucking a 10k medicine ball that distance. I can barely bloody lift one. Well, i got a 7.5k uh, kettlebell up there that I use now and again. Yeah. So the 7.5k kettlebell, which, you know, it's more the sort of shape as well. I could imagine just putting it on your shoulder and pushing it from the try line over the 22-metre line. It would literally just fall. I'll be honest with you. It, yeah. it, it would get maybe a metre and a half if I was doing that. It's one of those things you do in school, and you can be the best in your school at it. Yeah. And until you focus on something. I, mean, I, I, was, I was, for what it's worth, the best shot putter in my school, right? Okay. Be doing a smaller shot put, and I was doing 10 metres. So they're doing something that probably weighs twice as much and throwing it twice as far. Yeah. As, as me when I was 17, 18, not when I was like 11. It just bears no resemblance to it. When you, when you look at, like, you can, you can be the best long jumper in your school and do, like, four and a half metre long jump, quite chuffed with yourself. Yeah. And then you see the world record's, like, ten metres. Like, oh, shit. The thing with shot put, though, there were lots of kids in my school who 
were encouraged to continue with athletics and were told by the PE teachers, listen, you're talented, so you, you should start with Carmarthen Harriers and you, we can look at getting you to represent the county, etc. But it was all, it tended to be the running stuff. Yeah, that's true. I, I never met anyone who was like, that guy is going to be a shot put superstar. I've never met anyone who does the shot put. My mate Richard was a javelin thrower. He, he was good in PE lessons. And the, the PE teacher said to him, you should have a go with this. And he went down to Barry Harriers in Jenner Park and ended up doing shop, uh, doing javelin. But I think he was the only javelin thrower I know, Rich. And he was, yeah. de- he was good, like, you know, he was decent. But um, you wonder how many boys and girls slipped through the cracks with field events especially. Well, just athletics in general, really. But this is, he's doing that one bound thing. He's doing like a, a, a double hop and then ch- change legs doing another double hop. He's such an explosive bloke. And he's doing the old-fashioned, what I call the old-fashioned shop method as well. I don't know if they still do it anymore. Go on. That sort of the shuffle two, step. Yeah, the two steps bang, and then throw rather than spin. A lot of it's, yeah, a lot of it's spin release. Yeah, rotation now, is a better word. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> the spinny one. Yeah, the spinny one. The spinny, round, the spinny round one. Yeah. But that, to me, that's proper shop. But, but it made me think how uh, athletic a decathlete must be. Because if that's oh how athletic a thrower is, and I've mm. never computed that in my head, imagine then being able to have enough strength to, you know, nowhere near the distance on the throws, but also mm. being able to do the jumps, the hurdles. But you think that, and then you watch this, and you made a good point there. You always think it's just the big heavy blokes who can do a shot put. But when you're as good as this fella was, I can quite, well, you saw it in the video. Yeah. He can do, he can hurdle, he can well, that's sprint, what I'm wondering. he can jump. Is you know was there a missed opportunity in life here? He's strong, isn't he? He's he's explosive and he's strong. And, and apart from in a male decathlon, apart from the fifteen hundred meters, yeah, there's no real endurance event. It's all explosive. How on earth do you train for decathlon? They must get to Thursday like fuck pole vault. Yes, yeah. I mean generally Shit, fuck pole vault. Fuck, I haven't done any pole vault this week. <laughs> I haven't done any pole vault. Like you do in modules. Yeah, they must be good at one event, but not quite good enough. And then think, well, hang on a minute, all the training I'm doing, like this fellow now, like say he wasn't going to make it as a shot putter. Yeah, he'd go, well, hang on a minute, I'm pretty good at the hurdles. I'm pretty fast as well. I can, I can throw things a long way, so I could probably do javelin. Because as a young athlete, you always wind up doing more than one event at an event because yeah. there generally aren't enough people, yeah. or you've got to double up because you know it was a minibus rather than a bus that you took. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's always a reason why you've got to throw. If the British run. team had to be no more than fifteen people, it'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they went with the same logic that Newport Harriers did. You all have to get in a, you have to get in a Leyland Daff minibus <laughs> to go to Sarajevo. <laughs> Linford, what else go. can you do? <laughs> you, okay, fine, you can do the sprinting. Well, there we go. Look at so look at. Can Carl you read Lewis. a map? So, I'm sure Linford Christie would be a really good. He's a good hundred meter runner, good two hundred meter runner. He could probably push a four hundred if he had to. He'd be a good long jumper. He's probably built like a brick shit. I'm sure Linford Christie can throw a javelin. You can train him to throw, do a shot put and a discus. There we go. Right, Linford's on the bus. Fine. Roger. <laughs> Roger Black, Roger come over here. What else can you do? Gunthor, the shot putter we are discussing, yes. also represented, I don't know if he represented Switzerland, but he competed in the bobsleigh. Oh, perfect for bobsleigh. Absolutely. A bit tall for me. Yeah. Heavy, Six, though. seven. So he won three straight world championships, 87, 91, 93. One European championship in, 80, in championships in eighty six, and then at Seoul eighty eight, he got a bronze. Yeah, he competed in the bobsleigh, and he trained to be a sanitation installer, but later completed study in sports and works today as a sports teacher and track and field coach. When I see when I see tall, because obviously you can't affect your height, right? Yes. When I see tall blokes who aren't athletes, I'm always think 
you silly bugger. I wish I was tall. Yeah. It's, like, it's like well, it's like our friend Griff, who who's the, uh, the runs the Blues Academy or Cardiff Academy these days, right? Got great hair, Griff. He's in his forties. He's got a wonderful thick hairline. Yeah. Very thick hair. He shaves it down to the bone all the time. I'm like, that's wasted on you, mate. What are you doing? If if, if you've got a big thick head of hair, you should have lovely hair. If you're six foot seven, you should be doing something with it, shouldn't you? If you're seven foot, yes, you've got a seventeen percent chance of playing in the NBA. If you're American and you're seven foot. Watching this, I was reminded of it. Do you remember Richard Slaney, Steph, Dick no, Slaney? go on. So Mary Decker married him. He was a British... Okay, he that's was a British she was thrower. Mary Decker Slaney. Okay, yeah. 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 I, think he was, I think he was shot put, Richard right. Slaney, or was, he, or was he discus? But he was the same sort of thing, six foot seven, 18, 19 stone bloke. But he played American football. But in Britain, I think he played one of the British teams in the 80s when it was big. He was a discus was, thrower. Oh, there we go. Britain's How, strongest man. There we are. And when American football came along, he thought, well, I'll have a bit of this. And he was, he was terrified in, like, shoulder pads and helmet. Oh, yeah. Because he was enormous and strong and explosive. <laughs> and, Mary, and Mary Slaney was quite, was, Mary Decker was quite small, wasn't she? Well, yeah, she was middle to, was she middle to 3,000 metres? 1,500 wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Mickey Woolley look even bigger. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, that just popped, that's just weird. That popped in my mind there. <laughs> what the, the Willy thing? Or? No, Dick Slaney. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, t- yeah. yeah, yeah, that bit's weird. Yeah, <laughs> the other bit standard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but imagine if it was the fellow, like the, the German fellow in the NFL, now the tackle. I've seen him. Yes, this is the same. You imagine this. I was thinking, watching Gunther, thinking, imagine him. Imagine someone that athletic and that big and that powerful, you know, pants and a helmet, and you've only got one job. You say about being explosive. You know, you've just got to say, right, okay, fire from this direction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Imagine I'm a cheats. That's oh, what yeah. I was thinking watching it as well, was I couldn't find any supporting dietary videos, which made me sad. With the training he was doing and the size of him, yeah, it, would, it must have been crazy what he was spending on food. Do you know what, watching all that, I bet the thing that would have hurt the most the next day or the day after would have been those plyometrics. Yeah. When you do real bounding training, it absolutely ruins your muscles. Not You're me. in bits for days. No, no. Not me. No. I'm strange old place, Switzerland, as well. I lived over there for a bit. It's, a, it's a, yeah, strange. Very pretty, very beautiful, but very odd. Quite odd people, the Swiss. In a, in a good way. <laughs> I mean, they're just odd. People think they're pacifists because they, they've never been involved in wars for like the last 500 years, but they're, they're, they're far from it, really. The most high, I think they're the most highly armed nation in the world. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Every, 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 adult in, every adult in Switzerland has to do national service. Okay. And when you finish your national service, you're given a rifle and ammunition and like a rifle store. So that if they ever were invaded, basically Switzerland is so well set up. Yes. They don't not invade Switzerland because, because they've decided to call Cree and not be involved. Cree? Safe. They, they, don't, they don't invade Switzerland because it's very mountainous for a start. Yeah. Every single bridge of any decent size in Switzerland is apparently rigged with explosives. So they can, they can, they can, they can blow those up at a moment's notice, right? Uh, every single adult in Switzerland is military trained, has a weapon and knows how to use it. And it's the only nation in the world with enough space for every man, woman and child in a nuclear bunker as well. When they do eventually join a war. Oof, they're going to go off, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They're Don't really, fuck with the Swiss, mate. They're really going to make it. Really going to make it count. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like your mate who's never drunk. Yeah, yeah. And they've got all the money there, haven't <laughs> Just they? Just goes on it on a stag do. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they're going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. Ends up naked fighting a copper. 
brilliant Swiss flag tattooed on your ass. Let's go. Next morning, oh God, what did I do? <laughs> oh yes, started World War Three, won it in eight hours. <laughs> we used to um, we used to hitchhike, in, which I've never done before. Hitchhike interests on quite a bit. Right, but you just yeah, I don't. Which I, I wouldn't do here, but they they they're very into their law and order. Okay. It's like with the buses, they got like a lot like with the buses, like an honesty system. You get on, and you have to have, you have to buy a ticket on the bus. There's like a machine. But I said, well, we'll just get on it from don't pay. Yeah, they're like yeah, but yeah, but then if the police come on the bus, yes, with their guns, there's no, there's no fucking about with fifty pound fines. You're going to prison. <laughs> <laughs> So everyone buys a ticket. They've got those honesty boxes for newspapers in America, haven't they? Yes. I remember they, they tried introducing them in, in the Yeah, UK, but who wants but... ten papers? <laughs> <laughs> you keep fucking up the crossword, do you? You take all the papers. <laughs> but, I remember, but I remember... Trying to resell them. I, I'm stood next to the fucking newspaper box, selling them for 10p less. Get your dirty stars! <laughs> Oh. I remember they, they tried introducing them. I think WH Smiths did them in the UK. Oh, I got really stuck with them. Last for about two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it was an absolute fortune. People just pinching telegraph after telegraph. Just be an empty box with a big shit in on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on, Al. What's your clip for this round? Oh, well, I discussed Tifo last week, who, if you've got five days to kill. <laughs> So and and Mike really does so many good videos on just just explainers really for football tactics. I've learned so much from those Tifa videos and they're so well made. But this is how Alex Ferguson's tactics developed over the course of his 27 years with Man United. Setting his side up in what is as close to a 4-2-3-1 as you would see in England at the time, Ferguson deployed the mercurial Eric Cantona in the number 10 role, just behind the striker, a concept that was so foreign to most Premier League centre-backs at the time that it made him a nightmare to mark. Do he stick or twist? Cantona would be the central pivot to Man United's counter-attack, but ahead of him, Ferguson played Andre Konchelskis, a natural winger, as the centre-forward, while Ryan Giggs and Lee Sharp would line up either side of Cantona to form a trident of speed to work in tandem with the Frenchman. Paul Ince, playing in midfield alongside Brian McClare, was given licence to join the counter-attack, and the outcome was ruthless. The Red Devils scored three goals within 21 minutes, tearing through Norwich whenever they lost the ball. They've done a lot of... uh... Ferguson stuff. I think it was to coincide with him being 80. There's a 51 minute clip on sort of Alex Ferguson's time Is he at 80? United. Yeah, and pre- pre- presumably they've done some stuff on, on, on his time at Aberdeen as well. I used to find it very difficult to agree that Ferguson was the best manager of all time because I didn't like Man United in the 90s. So I used to make the Bob Paisley argument. When you remember that he also was so successful with Aberdeen, who mm. weren't even one of the old firm clubs. With no money. You know, they won the Cumberland's Cup, they then won the Super Cup. Aberdeen were Europe's best team at one stage under Ferguson. Then obviously went to Man United. And the thing I'm I'm always impressed with him more than anything else is more than any other manager I can think of, he was quite happy to dismantle a successful team and then just rebuild another one. So I think there are probably three great United sides. There's the the sort of Marcus, Cantona, Kanchelskis team, the Bruce and Pallister side uh, in the early 90s and then the treble winning team and then the absolutely mouth-watering Tevez, Ronaldo, mm. uh, Rooney team, the, the, the side that played 4-3-3 that won the Champions League again for the second time. So the reason he, he never fails to amaze me 
is that he adapted. Now, most people, even the top managers, have one good idea. They put that idea into practice. They win the title or they win a cup or whatever it is. And then football moves on and they find it difficult to move on. He never found it difficult to move on. As someone who finds it difficult to move on all of the time, <laughs> I just I never failed to be impressed with this. And his team's played such different football. Um, and I think it's just, you know, I don't, he doesn't need me to, to sing his praises, but it's to his credit that he was able to see in which way the wind was blowing tactically, learn from what was happening in Europe, and then obviously apply it to his Man United team. I said before we came on, these T4 videos... This, I, I, and I wasn't joking. I learned more. I was having a shave when I had that on, propped up on the uh, on the bedroom on the uh, bathroom shelf there. I probably learned more about formations in five minutes than I've learned in five years of watching it on telly. Yeah, because it, it, it just I thought, oh shit, I get what they mean now. I can I can, I can see it. I can visualise it. Yeah, they just broke it down so well. Yeah, I thought, oh, that makes sense. I, I understand what they're talking about on telly now. Once you go down a T4 wormhole, you'll be there all day, hmm. and then the next game you watch. You'll watch it in a different way, and you'll be very boring to your friends. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're playing it. They're switching to out of possession to a diamond in midfield with, uh, yeah, 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 him at the base. Yeah, and uh, and then you'll. Well, see, you see a lot of live football, and I don't. So when you see it very close up, when you when you see the person on the ball and the person that they're trying to go past, you don't appreciate. Shapes? No, I agree. Like I yeah, never yeah. know when they're talking about playing a four-three-three or playing a four-four-two or playing a diamond in the middle. I, I can't see anything. I can just see a bloke with a ball and a bloke trying to tackle it. Well, I, I, I just see running. People mm. are running. It's chaos to me. That's why I could never be a proper football journalist and write about. So when you see the, this reports in very simplistic X's and Y's, they call yeah. them. It just made sense to me. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you uh, if you're that kind of person who can. Well, but the number of coaches in any other sport, when when changes come in, they're so they're so rigid and so set in their ways, they just stop being successful, and they persist with the way they know of doing things. It doesn't work. Jose is a good example, I think, in football. Yeah, he hasn't moved on. Mm. But and, for, from, and from watching this and from listening to you and Steph, we say about with, with with the best musicians and the best songwriters and the best actors, you know, to continually look to learn yourself. So Mourinho would have come in. Ferguson doesn't think. Mate, I'm one of the best managers in the country. Yeah. He thinks, right, that's interesting. How are you doing that? And he, and he studies that and he learns from that. He's not got enough of an ego to think that there's, there's not a better way of doing the stuff that he's doing. Then he'll do your way better than you. Because I think once you've won a treble, you can justifiably say to anyone, especially your critics, uh, you're talking to the guy who won the treble, so um, mm. you, you, I, I, it's probably best that you pipe down, actually, because I, I don't know if you were watching ITV about four years ago, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, quite an exciting match. It ended up in us winning a treble, but especially with Mourinho, because he, he didn't cope with Jose initially. You know, those first two years, Jose won the title with Chelsea, mm. and he did have to adapt again, rather than retire, because he there was discussion of him retiring from the early 2000s onwards, yeah. rather than retire, which is what I would have done, he thought, no, 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 I will adapt and I will win the title again and I will beat Jose at his own game. And then obviously to go on and win another Champions League. I mean, he only won two Champions Leagues. Obviously lost in the in the final as well. Yeah. And I suppose that was, you could probably hold that against him. There are managers who've won more than yeah. two. But two is still... It's still pretty good. It's still pretty I'd good, it. isn't it? I think what, bringing in different assistant coaches, yes, that's like you true, say yeah. as well, you know the. I think you find I'm the guy who won the treble. 
not not having that attitude towards it and going right okay you could probably bring something to the table here that I might not have looked at or you know I can rinse your knowledge for my own gain whichever your motivation is doesn't really matter well Carlos Queiroz he was manager of Real Madrid after he was assistant yeah. at well that's why I didn't realise that and the way he said he was he was Portuguese wasn't he yeah yeah I didn't know any of that stuff hmm. but that's but, you, you know, know being open to other people like you were talking about the other day with. Pep being open to other sports, being open within your own sport is quite hard as well. Because you could take something from, I don't know, from hammer throwing training and bring it into what you're doing, and that's fine. But to go, okay, I think I know everything about football. I'm the best one. <laughs> I'm going to bring in someone else to give me some tips and not spend my whole time going, I wouldn't do it like that. I wouldn't do a warm up like and that. And it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I mean Use an NFL analogy. If you're if you're a coach that's built on a on a on a strong arm quarterback throwing long bombs down the field, and then he gets an injury, and you you haven't got a plan B. Yeah, you're going to get exposed immediately. Same in football. If 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 you're four four two, all about whipping in crosses to a big centre forward, put his head on it, mm. and he gets injured, then what you do? You Absolutely, know, you're stuck in a formation without the players to play in that formation. Well, Nev um, Never Southall was always very interested in training techniques from other sports because he wanted to improve how explosive he was because mm. he was having to spring into action to make you know point blank saves and stuff so he was training like a weightlifter he was training with weightlifters and doing yeah. other stuff he was fascinated by the training techniques from other sports which again is one of the reasons he was the best goalkeeper in the world at the mid 80s I don't I'm not going to jump on Wayne Pivak's back with the Welsh rugby team now right but they, they, he got the job on the back of an, an Ospreys having a couple of good seasons and, and playing a certain a certain style of rugby and then I just don't, I don't see an, I don't see a change. I think, I think we're trying to do. There's been injuries and there's people out and there's people not on form maybe. And, and you just think, well, mate, we'll do something different there because this isn't, this isn't working, right? You can't put in world class wingers into the centre and just hope for the best and, and keep doing things the same way you're doing it before because that doesn't work like that. You you have to do it differently for this game. Mm. You know, you have to adapt, play some nine man rugby, do something. Do, you know, do, do, you're exposing yourself. I watched that bloody Wales game on the weekend. I was so disappointed. And people think I've got a downer on. I'm not trying to jump on a bandwagon and have a go at Wales. I'm bloody Welsh. I love the Welsh rugby team. And I love the Wel- I love the Welsh side. I don't. I don't think I'm not the world's biggest fan of the Welsh rugby union, as we all know, right? But it isn't working, right? Whatever you're doing, like the administrators in Wales, whatever you're doing isn't working, right? So what you need to do is put your hand up and say, "We got this wrong. We don't know what we're doing. We need help with this, right?" It's never going to happen. Yeah, that's the difficult step, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. going, oh, I'm not sure that I'm doing this right. But I think all the best people at anything have got enough... It's enough confidence in yourself to be able to do that as well. Yeah. Managers sticking with something that is demonstrably not working drives me mad. When you think, everyone in the ground can see this. We lost playing this way last week and the week before and the week before that. So <laughs> yeah. What? what are you not seeing? Yeah. What's interesting? Or what are you seeing? Yeah. No, that's true. Which yeah. I'm kind of more fascinated by. Well, you said... I'm sorry to bang about rugby again, right? But this, and this is a personal thing for me. My boy played Cardiff Schools rugby, right? Luckily, he got in the squad a year early because he would have missed it completely the next year because of COVID, right? So he's a nine-year-old kid mm-hmm. playing rep rugby under 11, right? Yeah. But they're playing ten-a-side games under 11. Yeah. Ten-a-side, uncontested scrums, no real line-outs. You know, it's not the it's not it's rugby, but it's not rugby as, as we as we know it, right? His next chance to play any sort of rep rugby now, he's going to be 15. From the age of 10 and 15 in Wales, there is no pathway. There's no representative rugby between under 11, 10 aside, junior school kids, yeah. and under 15, kids 
shaving big yeah. hairy ass 15 year olds you know because we and we sponsor the, the under 15 team. yeah yeah and they are huge you look at some of those lads and compare it to Ben when he was 9 and there is there's, there's no comparison no, so between no. that and that there's no progression in Wales obviously you're, you're in the schools and you're in the clubs when you say this to the Welsh Rugby Union, they just go, well, that's, it's always been like that, though. Yeah, I know it's always been like that, though. But that's bad. Right? But it's bad. <laughs> why haven't we got an under-12s and an under-13s and an under-14s and an under fifteen? Why is it Why, ha- why haven't we got an A-team? Why haven't we got an A-team when all the other countries got A-teams? So you haven't got to make that huge leap into international rugby because there's a big leap. Mm. Even from regional rugby into that is a big leap. You've got to say, hands up, we're wrong about that. Yeah. We need to have rep rugby all the way through. We need to have an A team to develop players for the permanent international team. But they won't do it. And I, and I, I think they think they'd lose face. Would it be the opposite of, you say, of me think If they did that, I'd think, well, fair play to you. You can see what the problem is, and you're trying to do something about it. Yeah. You're putting your hands up. Yeah. And I'll back you 100% with this. But it's the short-term embarrassment of, you know, internally, I'm guessing Ferguson will have been embarrassed by the fact that he couldn't deal with Mourinho. And then he gets yeah. in... Uh, an assistant manager who can do it, but then they were, you know, demonstrably crap. Well, he, for they a while. talk about yeah, and they've seen yes. that their own, their own fans were booing them, and the assistant comes out and calls them stupid, right? Exactly, which probably didn't help. <laughs> that's real courage, and that's proper leadership, and that's it, proper absolutely. That's be able to think. Well, I, I know where we're going with this. Yeah, I watch Welsh rugby. I think fuck you. I've got a clue where you're going with this. He lost two Champions League finals, didn't he, to Barcelona? That was yeah. the one team he couldn't really cope with in 2009 and 2011. Because they'd won it in was it two thousand eight against Chelsea on on penalties. Mm. That an incredible Barcelona team. But again, I I think it must have been a tifo video. Football's moved on from then. Like I th- yeah. I honestly thought that Barcelona team, especially the twenty eleven side, United could not cope with them that day. That was at Wembley, I think that final. Mm. And United were second best. Yeah. They really were. And I remember watching that and thinking, mate, of mine was there. He's a big United fan, and he said we just couldn't get near them. Like we did was embarrassing at times. And I remember thinking then, Barcelona have completed football. <laughs> yeah. This is how the top teams will play forever now. Yeah. You just you you can't this this is football at its absolute best. And the teams you know, it's progressed and it's different and teams who play like that lose. What's interesting is hearing you two talking about tactics and how you sort of can't see formation sometimes. With my kids playing FIFA and I think with loads of other, you know, I think the computer games thing. Oh, totally. They have a complete understanding of the formations. Do they? And yeah, like a hundred percent. And all their mates do as well. I think yeah. it really helps when they play as well, because an under tens coach telling them to go and play, you know, uh, right wing coming back on the inside, they can relate it to something they've done on FIFA, mm. which is weird, I, but they learn. I tell you what, it has done. It is absolutely ruined pre-game pub chat for the under-25s. That's true, yeah. Where they are now talking about in, inverted wingers rather yeah. than um, an asymmetrical overlords as opposed to... Girls. which which <laughs> Girls or which players have funny you do that every week. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. You're, you're 41. <laughs> You've literally got another podcast you're doing after this, which is entirely that. <laughs> the fact that there's no representative rugby from 10 to 15... Makes zero sense. But even a 13 side would is that's the obvious thing, isn't it? Oh, or, or, or any 15 aside rugby before you're 15. Yeah, would be good. It just beggars belief, mate. But it, it's always been done that way, so it always will be done that way. I mean, someone put up a lovely tweet, and I retweeted it, and they put up like half of the Welsh Rugby Union board on there. Okay. And then to a man, 
well, for a start, they were all, they were all men. Yes. Right? To a man, they were blokes who tended to be around the age of 60 or 70. Yeah. Right. White one, cl- one club man? Who'd been secretary. They all seemed to have had an injury at, 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 at a young age, which would have stopped their, their sparkling career they were going to have, right? Which I always take with a pinch of salt. Anyone who tells me that they had an injury playing youth rugby, you know, with the fuck off. Of course you did, mate. So anyway, yeah. Of course you did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You also had trials with QPR, did you? Come on. <laughs> and you got a girlfriend in another town, remember? <laughs> um, but and they'd, they'd go into they go into club committees, which are all unpaid roles, and 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 we and club rugby couldn't survive without those people, right? I'm not knocking that for a second, right? The, the number of hours that those secretaries and and fixture sex and treasures put into clubs are unpaid is brilliant, right? And I don't I don't care if they get a couple of free tickets for it. They they're well worth that, right? But that's no background to run a hundred hundred million pound professional business, does yes, it? It's not yeah. the same thing, no. They've all gone from like being the club sec into invariably into either teaching, which they, they do till they retire. Right. Or working for the council, which they do till they retire. Neither of those I mean, take it from me, you can coast in either of those jobs. I've done both of them, right? <laughs> the good ones don't. <laughs> <laughs> the good ones don't. I want to. My wife's a good one, right? She doesn't coast. Yeah, you can coast, right? <laughs> they go from that into running the Welsh Rugby Union, a hundred million pound professional sports body. Fucking me. Yeah, I'm. Not, I'm sure they're nice blokes. Great. I'm sure they were great, great at the meat raffle and fucking. It's like it's like when um, the Swans were initially rescued because they were bought by a consortium of businessmen. You know, Martin Morgan ran a travel agent, big travel agents. Hugh Jenkins was a, a roofer, I think. So then they rescued the club. Brilliant. Thank God for that. We have a club. Because yeah. that was that was the alternative. And then because they made some really, really brilliant decisions and they chose some excellent managers and we had success on the pitch, suddenly then, those hmm. people who who bought the club with twenty thousand quid in cash given to Tony Petty in a carrier bag in the um in a room in the Copthorne. They were suddenly then manager, uh, you know, they, they were in charge of a football club with a with a but Premier you, League turnover. But you know what, though, mate, if if you run a roofing company, you understand cash flow, cash in, cash out. You understand yeah. pricing up jobs properly. You understand that if you fuck it up, you're not you're, you're going to lose money. If you work for the council, you can fuck up every day of your professional life, <laughs> and as long as you don't fucking fiddle with someone, you're not going to get fired, right? <laughs> and that's a fact. I mean, it's not, but okay. Well, it is. <laughs> it's really not. Some of the most fucking incompetent people I've ever met in my life work for councils, right? And some of the most incompetent people I've ever met in my life are teachers, right? And some are brilliant, right? Some are, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you're in the public sector, which, yeah, I'm ex-public sector myself. Yeah. It isn't about balance books. It isn't about making things successful and work properly. That's not what it's really about. Right, I think if austerity you, has changed that an awful lot. It, it is obviously because of, uh, yeah. You know, when you look at yeah, and I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking education. My wife's a teacher, and I'm an ex-teacher. Right, I, I love the profession. I'm just saying, if your background, well, yeah, but if your background's in, kind if your background's in working for the council and being a classroom teacher, right, not running a school, not being on the leadership team, but a classroom teacher for forty years or working for the council for forty years, right, you're not the person to run a business. I'd rather have somebody who was a roofer who ran a roofing company because if he fucks up, he doesn't get paid. Or he falls off. Yeah, and roofing's easy to see where you've gone wrong. You get fucking <laughs> wet when you sleep. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not my mistake. Well, it's, it's coming in, though, isn't it? It's coming in. You have if it. your bed's wet, it's demonstrably the wrong job. <laughs> there was a bloke who was working on a building site 
I was working with him and he said that um, his old boss, had, he'd been in the building trade since he was about 14. And then he eventually you know, started off as like a hod carrier and then eventually ran his own business. And he was still like a hod carrier, but he was now in the office. And he said that they were um, they were dealing in, in some, I can't remember what it was, but it was something really, really expensive. And he was seeing the builders like dropping it and stuff. He ended up jumping in some tarmac and ruining his shoes, some wet tarmac. <laughs> Why? These the shoes bet. cost me 150 quid. <laughs> but I would prefer to do that than for you to drop all of that stuff over there because that costs me 1,500 quid. Yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to make the point. <laughs> my dividends, I can afford to buy another pair of shoes, but I can't afford to buy that kind of stuff. And this guy like, couldn't, you know, he was, I, I would imagine, functionally illiterate. <laughs> But he had quite a uh, an expressive way of getting what it what it was what it was he wanted across. My mate said that the uh, the builders he was working with just found him hilarious because he was fucking mad and he well, was yeah. always doing he was always doing <laughs> stuff like that. Go trudging back to the office with tarmac on cemented <laughs> shoes, tarmac in his hair, over his shoes. <laughs> I just I just cannot handle institutions making the same mistake time and time again. It drives me. And I get one to drive being part of the, the the solution or part of the problem. I believe me, I'd love that to happen, right? I've I've written very polite emails to people and just had com- either shut shop completely or real shitty replies, right? And I've talked about it on here. I know that we're talking about Alex Ferguson, and I've, I've gone off on one about the Welsh rugby. But um, I'm not anti—I'm not anti Welsh rugby. I'm very pro Welsh rugby. I'm very pro Wales. I'm very pro the game of rugby. Would you being on the board be the solution? Is that what these people are saying to you? It wouldn't be any fucking worse. No, I didn't think it would be any worse. <laughs> I was questioning whether it would be the solution. No, it wouldn't be the no, solution. That's, that's kind of what I mean. So people saying, but you, unless why they said, the right, what's your, what, what's your job on the board, Mike? Your, your job on the board is going to be finding someone to sort this shit out. I said, okay, let's have a go at it then. Let's let's have a go at it properly. Let's, but first, let's be very honest. First of all, like if Alex Ferguson did, yeah, where are we fucking things up? Does that Where's happen it going anywhere wrong? though? In many businesses, the sports people are the most honest people I've ever worked with. The people who they want to know with people, though, no, that's what I mean. But they're the, they're the most honest people. So people like Ferguson, people who are ex-pros at a sport. I was talking to Richard Parks the other day, the old rugby mm. player. Um, he was around here filming some stuff, so we just happened to bump into him and have lunch. Just talking about how honest feedback doesn't really happen in the real world. It oh, happens mate. in oh, sport, yeah, 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 but it doesn't happen anywhere else. I'm writing scripts now, and I'll say to people, be brutal with the feedback with me, right? If you think it's shit, tell me it's shit, then tell me why it's shit. Mike, it's shit and you're overweight. Thank you, right? <laughs> the reason why this that. is shit is because you're overweight. Yeah. But then do what I would do. I get on a fucking exercise bike and I drop four stone. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. I am overweight. I love the idea that your writing might be shit because you're overweight. <laughs> I can't get close enough to the keyboard. <laughs> Just keep pressing the space bar with your belly. Yeah. They're much too short. It's too much effort, really. Smiles away, that um, keyboard. And they said that's, it's unusual for someone to say, if I'm shit, just tell me. Yeah. You know, and tell me, yeah, tell me, yeah, and tell yeah. me why, and I'll, I'll sort that out. Well, yeah. I remember one of my first sort of, when I was a manager, one of my first meetings, where I said, oh, yeah, that was my fault. And everyone in the room looked at me like, what? Wow. Yeah, never what? say that. I was yeah. like, well, it was, I fucked up. That's all right. Yeah. Well, they said, with the, I'm, so I'm um, writing a, a, a thing now, right? 
And they said, would you mind working? Because, you know, your background's in comedy, not really in writing. Would you mind working with a writer? Yeah. I said, no, of course. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I work with somebody whose job is is the bit I don't really like to do? The nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Great. He's a writer. Um, he's a personal trainer as well. <laughs> <laughs> he's off with his fucking gimpy knee. Yeah. Want to watch it? You, you speak a, out your ideas on that exercise bike and this man will write them down. He's, he's a nutritionist. He'll yeah. be in charge of lunch. Can, can we? Can Alice be in it? Rather not. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. Something of a bully. I've, yeah, I've seen his work, and he and he's a very bitter taste on set. If I'm honest. Divisive character. He's <laughs> very judgmental. If we're trying to get away from that sort of thing. He's a bit of a. Hard, it's not 992 anymore. He's not Harvey Weinstein, but he's not a good egg. Oh, go on, Mike. What's your clip for this round? Right, my clip, this is uh, a fellow called Adrian Clifton, who is a Borehamwood player manager, Borehamwood FC, um, and they are now in the fifth round of the FA Cup. This is him talking about winning their fourth round match uh, last week. And you weren't able to score yourself today, but you came on, you got minutes, and you made sure that you played a part in making sure that your side goes up to Everton to play a Premier League side. So what does that say about your journey? <sighs> it's, um... It's, oh, it's just it's amazing. I don't know what to say. I honestly don't know what to say to you. Um, it's been a long journey. It's been a tough journey. This end of it, um, yeah, it's, oh, I'm speechless. It's, I'm speechless. Well, Adrian, you spoke earlier about the role that Ian Wright has played in terms of being a role model for you and helping you. If you were to give a message to Ian, what would you say right now? Thank you. <sighs> Thank you. What, what more can I say? Thank you. And... Um, there's hope, there's hope, you know, when someone like Ian comes into a young man like myself's life and shows belief, we, we see how, you can see how far it can go, you know, and um, I was reading a lot of stories about success story, the FA Cup success story of this, but for me, it's a success story in turning my life around, you know, getting back to where I should have been or could have been when I was younger, you know, so... It's amazing what what the effect it's had on me. Look, look, I'm standing in front of you now. Emotion. I'm back. I'm holding back the tears like massively. But yeah, it's very, very emotional. Very emotional. But um, two words. Thank you. So I love this anyway. I was watching this clip. Um, brilliant that a non-league team is in the fifth round of the FA Cup. Obviously, love it when that happens. I, I think we're very, very lucky in this country uh, to have a competition like that where. Giant killing can still happen, and mm. you know there is the magic of the cup they talk about. It, but it's, it's, it's true, isn't it? I mean, if you're playing non-league football, and they're now going away to play Everton, which is it's just that's a it's a brilliant and not, and not and, in an exhibition game. And Everton yeah. were in trouble. Yeah, yeah, and not an exhibition game, not a kick around, not a, not a charity match, a proper game where there's a chance, albeit a small chance, you could win it. I mean, you know they'll be they'll be going full on for it because they could do with. Some success. They're not getting much in the league, so that they'll they'll want a good cup run. So there's all that part of it, which is amazing. And what he, what what he's done there and what they're doing this season is brilliant. And then at the end of it, he sort of says, you know, what have you got to say? And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't know this. Um, just what we got to say to Ian Wright, and he said, just thank you. And he gets he fills up, gets very emotional. I thought, what's that about? Then and I googled it, pouring word and Ian Wright and everything else, and they came up with with the the interview that he did recently with with Ian Wright talking about a thing they did sort of 10, 12 years ago. 
called Footballers Behind Bars. And then when I Google Adrian, saw that he'd been, uh, he was on the books at Arsenal as a kid, like uh, at youth, all the way up to under 15 academy. And then was one of those kids that gets to, and we've mentioned this on the pod before, they get to sort of 16, 17 years of age and they don't make it for one reason or another. They, they don't make the final step into professional football. And they basically, without putting too fine a point on it, just get cast aside. They get kicked out. You don't get any sort of post post that kicker. There's no real support. There's no real encouragement. And, and, and he talks about the fact you had a manager there looking after you. You, know, you, you were very much in the sort of um, in the care of a club almost all the way through from from a young age up. And then at sort of 16 years of age, just kick you out. And he ends up getting in with the wrong crowd. He's from the, from a tough part of, of the country. Ends up getting done for dealing class A drugs. Goes inside, and they did this uh, football of Muay Bars uh, documentary, sort of 10, 12 years ago with Ian Wright. Going, talked to him as a young man, uh, and said, what, "You know, what are you doing with your life? You, you can't, you can't go on like this. This, this, this has to change." To show an interview with his his mum, saying that, "God, this really hit home as a parent when she was saying, I'd rather him be in prison, yeah, yeah, and I know where he is, and I know he's safe, than be on the street the way that he was going because he's going to either kill someone or get killed." I thought, shit, imagine, I mean, that's, that's reality slapping you in the face right there. So what a story. So after that, he sort of comes out of prison, gets his head down, goes and, you know, gets a job, stays, in, stays in the, on the straight and narrow. Uh, get, obviously still, still a good footballer, never quite got to that level that, that maybe he hoped he would have got to. But for him to now be in the fifth round of the FA Cup, when he was talking to me and right about it, mm. there was two things for me. One was I, I thought, this is such a nice story. Mm. This is such a lovely story. And I, I fucking couldn't love Ian Wright more than I do anyway. I then thought about the Mr. Pigden stuff. Yeah, yeah, Ian Wright. yeah, yeah. And I thought, that lovely old bloody RAF pilot from the Second World War yeah. has not only saved your life, Ian, right? And, That's and, 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 and But he's also, all the people that you've touched now through that documentary, you've, you, you, you've changed all their lives, right? So now this Adrian's at Boreham Wood, and he'll see young lads who are going to make the wrong decisions that he made, and he'll put an arm around them and say, "Listen, I've been there, I've done that. You don't want to be doing this, you know? Do this." Yeah. So that one act of kindness by a PE teacher in the fucking 1970s just has this ripple effect. Where if you do one good thing for somebody, you can affect hundreds of lives and thousands of lives, right? So I really love that. So um, and I was watching it again. And this is why I wanted. To, I, I didn't want to put a downer on this one. But I wanted to do this uh, later on in the, in the first round of clips. I mentioned the bit just now about being a teacher. I'm an ex-teacher. Yeah. My, my wife's a teacher now, right? And I don't want to get too deep with this, but when you see young fellas like that, like Adrian, when they, when they end up inside, they end up making the wrong choices, it tends to be a lot of uh, those lads that uh, uh, grow up in estates, they're, they're, black, they're black lads. Um, when, I, when I was a kid, this, this was a long window way of getting here, I'm sorry, but when I was a kid, I, I can remember there were all sorts of jokes about black people. There were all sorts of jokes about Pakistani people. There were all sorts of jokes about, you know, and, and that became, thankfully, that, that died out. So if, you're, if you were a black, a young black bloke in Britain at that time, and I'm sure there's exactly the same now, you get looked at a certain way. You get treated differently. You, you, you get, and, it, and it's to do with poverty, but the, but the poverty is to do with chances and not getting chances that other people might get. I'm not getting the promotions other people might get, not getting the, the breaks that other people might get. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm going to mention this. I wasn't going to mention it, but I thought, fuck it, I'm going to mention it. My, my wife, in the school that she works in, there's a lot of traveling people there. There's a lot of uh, Roma people. There's lots of it. There's, it's a real uh, melting pot of a school. Yeah. And I was there for, for, for four or five years. And I'm going to use the word gypsy, not in a pejorative way, right? But I worked with the gypsy, with, with the gypsy lads, and I got on well with, with a few of the kids there who were, who were into their boxing. A couple of the boys had a go at rugby and stuff. And I thought, it had a lot of parallels. I mean, watching this, thinking about, 
the Jimmy Carr thing would just rear its ugly head this week, yeah. which was from a couple of months ago. Yeah. Right? And I, and this is not at Ellis because Ellis doesn't get involved in the in the political side of things at all, right? Which is fine. We him and I are different on Twitter. I understand <laughs> why that is, right? So not Al, but other comics that are mates of mine, some are colleagues, some I work with, some I don't know, right? That if this was if you were making a joke about black people or about gay people or trans people or about Pakistani people or Muslim people or Jewish people, yeah. they'd be up in their arms about it. Yeah. They would be up in arms about it and they'd be ranting and yeah. raving. It'd be all over social media, right? Jimmy Carr, who's a grammar school boy who went to Oxford, then went into marketing, and then went into neuro-linguistic programming to see how he can sort of adapt, you know, even basically, I think that's snake oil salesman stuff, but there we go, right? So grammar school, Oxford, marketing, NLP, right? He then comes out and makes that joke about genocide and gypsy people. Yes. Not the first time he's done that. I've seen him do jokes about gypsies, comparing them to why do seagulls have wings to beat the gypsies to the skip? I've seen him do a joke about a male gypsy moth can smell a gypsy moth from, from a mile away. That, that sentence works if you take away the word moth. Right. I've seen him do jokes that I'm not even going to repeat yeah. when I saw him live in Swansea about, about homosexual people, right? I thought, mate, that, that's a cunt's trick because what you're doing there is you're, you're picking on a minority mm. that at the moment is you think is fair game. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking this, I was thinking about, imagine being a, a, you imagine being a black kid growing up in the 70s and the 80s, and you're watching John Barnes on TV, people chucking fucking bananas at him. Yeah. You're, you're eating those sort of jokes, you're burning manners on your TV, you've got the black, black and white minstrel show, right? Yeah. That's your reality, you grew up in that reality, you're just thinking you're not worth as much as anybody else. My wife is chuffed at the moment, I'm getting a bit emotional now, they've got more traveller kids in year 11 now than they've ever, ever had. Okay. Just had, just had a first traveller kid go to university, which has never happened in his family before ever, right? She's working her bollocks off, and teachers are working their bollocks off to work with the traveling community, to integrate them, to make them feel like they have, a, they have worth. When you've got to listen, and I've done it, mate. I've, I've fucking told gypsy jokes in the past. I would never do it now, right? When you vilify a section of society like that, mm. what do you fucking expect, honestly? I mean, and to do that at a gig, and then people to cheer about it, it just yeah. made me feel... And I thought, I thought do you know what? You, you cannot... I could say something completely offensive right now completely offensive and it would get a reaction right and if I, if I put a caveat before that saying I'm going to say something oh this is a career killer and then I said it yeah and then I went oh god and I said I, I did say it was a career killer yeah it's not funny if you say something that's cruel and, and racist yeah, there's a good chance you're just being a, a fucking racist bully is what you are right I think yeah. sorry mate I'm just going to finish it because we talk about people like Tyson Fury and, and uh, Samson Lee if you want people to be just be kind and I'm, I'm not I'm not living in fucking glass houses and throwing stones like I said I've done shit in the past but I've real, I realised I've done it and I'll keep fucking up and when I do fuck up feel free to tell me and I'll try to I'll try to do it better right I was I, I could draw parallels in this in, in being a, in being a black kid growing up thinking you're not worth anything and you think that your life is gangs and it is fucking selling drugs and it is being being an arsehole and you get one good role model like an, like an Ian Wright or uh, you get someone like Mr Pigden jumping in and they can change that right telling jokes in inverted commas, about gypsies being smelly or poor or, or uh, thieving or, or whatever else. What, what's that going to achieve? What, where's, where's that going to go? You, you, is it, are we saying now that you can't tell jokes about black people and Muslim people and Jewish people and gay people and trans people, but, you, but gypsies are fair game. They're, they're fine. Yeah, I've got the gypsies. I, I just, it, would, it made me sick last week. I think that it, kind of humour as well, I think more quickly than he would like, will look very, very dated. So Barry Cryer, there was that thing that um, 
there was that clip of him on Pointless, I think it was. Right. Alexander Armstrong said, you know, when's the, you, you worked with? Oh, the gold, what was the golden you era? With? You know, what was the golden era? Yeah. Expecting him to say the 60s or the 70s. Hmm. Uh, and he said, it's now. Yeah. There's great stuff, which I completely agree with as well, because there's, comedy is more eclectic and it's more diverse and there's different stuff out there. I think because our TV watching habits have changed, I don't think we're going to get 30 million watching a show on Christmas Day again. Yeah. But I think that there is probably, it's probably more likely that there is comedy out there for you now than at any other point in the last 100 years, I reckon, because there's just so much good stuff being made. And obviously because of things like YouTube and etc., it's a very democratising... Like, look at Al Green, like Alistair Green on Twitter. <laughs> his videos make me howl with laughter, and he's filming them all in his living room on his phone. Mm, brilliant. And that's, that's how he's become successful. And I just think that the stuff Jimmy's doing, I think, will look very, very dated in a few years' time. And that joke... I was just disappointed the people, the people who are always vocal about this sort of thing have said, fuck all about it. And I thought... Yeah. When I, when I, when I tweeted it last week, people joked to me, you know, not uh, online, you know, well, you're never going to get asked to be on fucking eight out of ten casters countdown. I said, "Fucking good," you know. Yeah. I, I, so, would you say that to his face? I said, "Yeah, I would say it to his fucking face." Of course, I say it to well, his face. Well, he came out. I doubt he'd say that to fucking Tyson Fury's face, but I said that to his face. He came out with a very uh, dodgy defence. He said, "I'm actually trying to educate people. A lot of oh, a lot off. of people didn't realise that the gy- gypsies were um, targeted by the uh, um, in the Holocaust. Actually, it was more of an education thing." Oh, what a cunt! And he's he's. T- <laughs> And he's doubled down on it now because he's. I think he must have had a gig a couple of nights ago. Right. Because the special itself is an old one. It's been he'll up get since out of it Christmas, exactly. Christmas time. He'll, yeah. Um, he'll joke about it, and there'll be a big joke, and there'll be a little look to camera, like when he got done for bloody. Um, and I think it, it might have been. I don't know if it, was, it might have been John who called him out when he when he got done for tax dodging. But they, and that became a joke. He, he started making jokes about the fact that he got done for tax dodging, and everyone yeah. sort of laughing along with it. Now, now he'll make a joke. The next time he's on bloody eight out of ten cats with Rachel Riley. They'll make a joke about that, and the, the people sort of. I just think you're the same people. You're the same people that are fucking up in arms about it. I'm thinking about the gypsy kids that's, that my wife teaches now. Yeah. The traveller kids that she teaches, who have to go to school knowing that that's a fucking that's okay. Yeah. Because yeah. some prick on fucking Twitter with a Union Jack on his profile picture says, "Oh, lighten up, snowflake." Yep. I think those people are those people. The ones yeah. that I think. First of all, I kind of agree with you on you know, your overall point about people not, you know, not clamping down or criticising this. But it's not like he did it at a live show. He did this on a Netflix special. Which has been through God knows how many times. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. So someone's approved it. Mm. Presumably there are co-writers. There's a bunch of production crew filming it. And it's got to go you've through had, layers before it goes up on Netflix. Compliance, editors, yeah. various... So people. Yeah, I know. there's a whole chain of people... Where this is considered to be okay, not just Dave with a Union Jack and a bulldog on Twitter. Yeah. In my in my experience as well, the f- the free speech <laughs> brigade tend to be white male, often middle class men, of course, who haven't had their life chances ruined by these sorts of by 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 prejudice. So they don't know what it's like to be in a minority. When you look at the people defending that, well, I mean, I, I, it wouldn't bother me. It's just words. No bloody jokers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, sticks and stones may break my bloody bones, actually. I think, yeah, but 
It's the uh, the old um, white privilege argument, which I think some people misunderstand. In that, if you're, you, you, it's indisputable that there are parts of Britain that are largely white that are very very poor, and your life chances are, you know. Uh, horribly affected right so yeah. say you're grown up on a mainly yeah, on a mainly white <laughs> yeah. but but say, say you grew up in a in a mainly white uh, council estate and uh, the schools are bad and there's drug problems all all of the, all of those indicators of deprivation are bad right hmm. white privilege doesn't mean that because you're white you get to walk into a job in the city it means that if you do go for a job interview they're not noticing your skin color as well yeah hmm. That's what white privilege means. It doesn't mean, oh, oh, so, so my life is brilliant, is it, because I'm white? It means, no, it means you don't have that extra thing to contend with as well. Everyone, no one disputes that it's not fair that the school you go to is shit and that there's no jobs in the area you, you grew up in and blah, 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 and there's a there's a, a crime and antisocial behaviour in the place that you live. Of course that's wrong. Yeah. But if you were black on top of that... You've got that to contend with, and I think that the traveller community, obviously, it's not as visible. It's not. Know. It's not as visible. It's absolutely a thing, and it definitely. Affects. But I just know the hard work they got a travel liaison officer, the hard work the teachers do in that school. Yeah. To to give traveller kids self worth, make them think the school is worthwhile. They have got opportunities. They can do this. They can do that. Not trying to change their lifestyle. No one's trying to. If you, if your family live in a caravan site and that's what they want and they want to go and live again obviously that's what you do that's that's part of your culture right? yeah but just that there are opportunities there for you you can do this stuff you can do and you 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 have worth right i was thinking like people like so when adrian or when ian grew up especially god like i was saying when he was a kid people like bernard manon on on tv making jokes about black people yes. or, or jim davis and making jokes about black people weren't making it easier for him and it's the it's the alf garnet defense right when warren mitchell was playing like alf garnet oh yeah but I, I, i'm taking the piss off the racists well, all right, mate, but if all your fans are racists, <laughs> do something different. Yeah. Right? So if you want to see what sort of... like, I'm very disappointed in co- friends and colleagues of mine who have just let this one go. Mm. But if you want to see the average sort of person who thinks this is fine, who defends it, doesn't just ignore it, but actually defends it, then have a click on their profile picture and see what sort of person they are. Mm. Right? Like you said, they're not, they're not mixed race. They're not vain. They're, not yeah. they're, you know, they're going to be straight white... Yes, middle cis, class, middle class. Yeah, and and like, working to middle class, you know, decades. You know, who want a better word? Yeah. Um, this is I'm not, and this is this make this. I don't want to get political at all, right? I'm going to mention the the B word, right? And mention Brexit, right? My wife and I, we genuinely, because I'm I'm a big believer in in sort of. I'd like to think that I think people deserve a fair crack of the whip and things done a certain way. And your wife's the opposite. Absolutely. Yeah, she's, she's vicious. <laughs> really? She's like, Eva, she's like Eva Braun, basically. It's a, it's a really strange relationship you've got, but it works. No, but you know what? When we were thinking about it, and I was really on the fence until the 11th hour with, with Brexit, whether to, whether to leave Europe or stay in U- the EU. Honestly, I, it, it, for me, it was, I was thinking about the financial side of it and, and for, all sorts of things I was thinking about, um, democracy and everything else, right? But at the end, I thought, when it was all coming out, I thought, Christ, there's a lot of lunatics <laughs> want Brexit badly, <laughs> so even though I know plenty, plenty, plenty of, my, of, of friends and family that, that voted for it who aren't lunatics, it, it, it tend to be all the real proper weirdos were voted for it. So like, well, <laughs> I'm not in their gang. So even if Jimmy Carr didn't mean anything by this, which is fucking bollocks, by the way, right? 
But even if he didn't, yes. if the fact that everyone defending you is a racist, <laughs> that tells you something, doesn't it? Anyway. It's not the gang to be in for me, I agree. No, do what fucking Mr. Pigden's done. Do what Ian Wright's done. Do what Adrian's doing now, right? And, and, be, and, and, and be a force for good. So the wormhole this clip sent me down of watching the whole feature that Ian does with him this yeah. time round... It's amazing. You've seen Roy Keane's reaction. Yeah, Roy Keane's brilliant. reaction was what I was going to say now. He's just like, you know, you've done something proper here. Yeah, yeah. It's really powerful. And to see Roy almost emotional in a non-aggressive way yeah. Yeah. was lovely. No, it was. Because... We should put all those clips together. I think right? I will. I'll, 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 yeah, we should do that. Um, <laughs> we'll pull them all together and we'll put them Sh- on. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we'll, we? We'll do that. And Sh- he, shouldn't we? Ian Wright says... <laughs> Because I am, he can call me whenever he wants. That's that's what was interesting was when he was. Talking, and you know that's not bullshit. No, he's talking yeah. about being a mentor, and what that actually means. And in most spheres of life, being a mentor means you've put yourself up there as the famous person, and you've gone along to a press release day, and you've done the, <laughs> you've done the yeah, mentor yeah, yeah. thing publicly, mm. and then you yeah, fucked exactly. off, and no one's got your mobile number. They might have your email address, but they probably haven't. You've done it for PR. And he hasn't done the documentary for PR. He's done the documentary because he actually has come from an estate where, you know, life crossroads happen. And the life crossroads that those guys have been through wound up with them being in jail. And he is trying to be part of the solution. But to actually be available then for these guys when they are released, because that's that's not the end of things, is it? Being released doesn't mean you're fine. You're that's on the straight and narrow. That's the hard work. Yeah, that's when the tough stuff begins. That's when yeah. you face, you know, prejudice for being black and having a criminal record mm-hmm. as well. So your chances of getting a job even in football are pretty small because you've been inside as well as, you know, all the other issues you've gone through in life. So to actually be a mentor properly, I paints Ian in a great light for me. Yeah, he's a really good person, Ian Wright, I think. A really, really yeah. good person. If, if if we can, Steph, yes. maybe we should put the um, Mr. Pigton clip on there. As we well. should uh, just compile. So so I, I know we've done. I know we've done it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the, yeah, on the yeah. pod, but that's fine. But it's nice to see that. Because Mr. Pigton could be like every other fucking uh, bloke of his age. You know, in the seventies. Yes. X X R A F. Blah blah. blah. He could have been all those things, right? Yes. But he wasn't like that. Absolutely, he could have just been a job for him teaching. It could have just been, yeah, like you yeah. say, could have like just been one of those Mike. lazy ones, like it was for Mike. It could have been. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been Imagine if you taught Ian right. He could have been. He could have been, co- he could have he been, could been out the door, the beer, the buzz, like I was at three o'clock. But he sir, didn't do that. Sir, I'm having a few. Bye. Bye. <laughs> the car is started. That bell is for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, it's documentary time. Uh, Mike, your choice for this week. Yeah, I was just scrolling through stuff the other day and I'm going to do one of my epic exercise bike uh, journeys to nowhere. And uh, 
This caught my eye. I know we've talked about Muhammad Ali before, we've talked about boxing before, but this looks at uh, that period of time around um, around the draft and before that. Really fascinating documentary that I really highly recommend. This is called The Trials of Muhammad Ali. The enemy wanted him to come out all blasted, but my line myself said no, no. was exemplifying a freedom that most black people did not enjoy. We could not foresee the difficulties that would lie ahead as far as military service and, of course, the Muslim affiliation. You won't fight for your country. You refuse to go into the... Uh... I'm a minister of my religion. This country has laws for ministers. Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. It took an all-white jury less than a half hour to find Muhammad Ali guilty of all charges and specifications. I find nothing interesting or tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. I'm not allowed to work here now in America. I'm not allowed to leave America. The exiled years were the worst years of me and Ali's life. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die then right here fighting you. I have two alternatives, either go to jail or go to the army. But I would like to say that there is another alternative, and that alternative is justice. So there we go. Um, I thought I knew quite a bit about Muhammad Ali. I've read, I've read a few books and I've uh, I've watched a lot of uh, YouTube stuff. And I can remember as a little kid, the fight's been on in, in the house towards the end of his career. And mum was a boxing fan. There's loads of stuff in here I didn't know. I, I knew I, I knew the nuts and bolts of the Vietnam story and the refusing to be drafted, I should say. Uh, I knew a little bit about the Nation of Islam. and But this is, I, I found the whole thing from start to finish fascinating. So it goes from uh, his, in his days as Cassius Clay just after the sort of Olympics, and then it goes through him turning professional and how, how he started off in Louisville in Kentucky. Uh, a sort of cabal of local businessmen who would get behind him and, and sponsor him. And it goes right through then to him really rubbing up people the wrong way in America, gets involved with the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, refuses to go to Vietnam. And the fallout from that, and then is sort of, uh, that he ended up getting back into boxing and got to the Supreme Court and... I didn't realise, like the, the spoiler alert, the Supreme Court thing at the end. I, I had no idea that he was that close to going to prison. Yeah. I thought I, I, that was complete news to me. Um, but the whole way that it's done, the music, the footage, the documentary footage, the the, the, the usual stuff from back in the day, the modern day interviews. They got his daughter on there. Who was the fella that was one of the? He's the only surviving man of the Kentucky. Was it? Um, Gordon B. Davidson, this fellow, who is the only, the only surviving. And the way they were working those days is, is businessmen would sort of put money in. Uh, I'm sure it still works in the same a lot of times these days, but businessmen put put money in and back a boxer, almost like you, you back a racing horse. And then, Do you know what? Even though he was an Ali fan, in inverted commas, and he was one of the, the people that, that uh, financially supported him when he started out, as an investment, right? they, were, they weren't stupid. It's very interesting. Is his... His terminology when he first talks about it, I think he's. I think he uses the words. And I might get this wrong. He said, "I was one of the." Um, I think he says one of the owners of Muhammad, yes. Al, of Muhammad yeah. Ali. Yeah, yeah. 
And I thought, bloody hell, mate, talk about a Freudian slip. I mean, that you're, so there was this, uh, this cabal, like I said, of these rich uh, southern white men mm. who basically all buy a stake in Muhammad Ali yeah. or in Cassius Clay, as he was, which I found weird. And you saw those early photographs, and there, there was there was like these. Uh, was there eleven of them? Yes. Yeah, I think I so. Think was, I think it was eleven blokes and, and Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay. The whole civil rights thing, Martin Luther King, mm. Malcolm X, mm. all that stuff. I found. I mean, that was such a. There was such turmoil at that time. Yeah. In America, and I don't think I ever appreciated how much it took for him to make the stand that he made. And when, and when the government bring out people like Joe Lewis to say, "Listen, yes. you know, he's unpaid," you know, you you bring out other really well respected uh, black boxers come out of sort of retirement to talk about you being unpatriotic because they've done their bit for the country. But and, but if you think of it from his eyes, put put the the race, the the religious thing to one side. You imagine growing up in the South in the forties and the fifties. Mm, the grandson or the great grandson of slaves, but still very, very much treated as not even second class citizens. And then you, you're the people that they want to recruit to go to Vietnam to fight the Viet Cong, yeah. to go like 8,000 miles away and join in a war. He's, and, and he says, about, I've got to fight for America. He says, but what is America? What, is it to, what was it to me? You know, and there was, also, there was all that sort of bit of that, that ungrateful. You know, that you're seen as ungrateful or anti-American or not patriotic. He said, well, that was his life as a black man in America in those days would have been bloody awful. The fact that he was a brilliant boxer. And then, so, and he was saying that it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, the, the money that I was making for the Treasury in tax, they had a top rate of tax in those days, I think it was 90%. Yeah. I think Britain, Britain was 97 at one point. Bloody love that, <laughs> You'd be loving it, mate, wouldn't you? Like a, like a utopia for you. <laughs> Paying him nine, nine more. Pen, 90 pence in the pound. <laughs> yes, please. And he said, I, you know, I, I, my fights, I generate enough to buy warships and helicopters. And, you know, if you, if, if, if you want a, a war machine, then it makes more sense for me to be here generating money for your war machine. Yeah. But because I'm the person I am and I'm making the stand I'm making, you want to make sure that I go to Vietnam. It's got one of the most extraordinary beginnings to a documentary I've ever seen. Other than maybe the the Maradona one, the Asifkopedia Maradona one, where he's driving yeah. through Naples. So he's on a talk show, and he's making jokes. Yes. He's, being, Unbelievable. he's being Muhammad Ali. And you're like, I've, I've watched a lot of documentaries about Muhammad Ali. I'm yeah, like, this oh, is yeah, going to be yeah, the yeah, same. Classic. Yeah. And then it's... Um, I, d- I don't know who it is, but it's like, it's like a white journalist or something. The, the the host says, so what do you think about him? And he th- I think he's unpatriotic. I think he's disgusting. And just hammers him for for, mm. the, for about a minute. And mm. he's just got to sit there and take it. I've never seen any footage like that. And I'm fascinated by Ali. And I loved watching this. And I think if you ever needed to make the argument that sport at its best transcends sport and is about something else and tells us about humanity and tells us about politics and about a decade, because he did define he did define his decade. Yeah. I would show them this documentary because you learn so much about America at the time, and America now to an extent, but certainly it filled in so many of the gaps for me about the civil rights movement and stuff, stuff that I half knew. And the thing with Ali as well, I mean, of all the great 20th century icons, whether it's... Marilyn Monroe or, or John Lennon or Miles Davis or whoever, 
Elvis Presley. And Elvis Presley, obviously. I thought you were coughing for yourself then. I was like, yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm, 20, I'm 21st century. But, um, <laughs> I know there, is, there is something so magnetic about him. Oh, my God. It's it's sort of biblical or religious how... Do you know what? When he's, they, he his brother's on there quite a bit. Him. Yeah. So they're obviously they've got you know same mum and dad, same genes. Yeah. Very similar genes. Uh, boxed, yeah. you know. But in a weird how, how the cards fall, because he's just a bloke who obviously loved his brother, gets quite emotional at one point. But fucking hell, the charisma on Ali. <laughs> it's it's unquantifiable and it's unbelievable. And the other thing, I knew, obviously I knew that he was um, unable to box for three and a half years, which from a sportsman's perspective, we missed out on his best three and a half years. Oh, because yeah. when he comes back, he's physically different. He's much heavier. And, you know, he was so... He had six weeks to get ready for that fight. Yeah, incredible. But the thing I hadn't appreciated, he was practically made bankrupt and he had to go on these yeah. uh, public speaking public tours. speaking tours yeah. where he'd earn a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred dollars for speaking at university campuses and things because he couldn't work. To get abused by some Yeah, yeah, some yeah. Some wanker undergraduate. Campus, you know I mean? Yeah. Yes. Saying he's un- saying he's unpatriotic. Or just being plain racist. Yes. Yeah. He is honestly <laughs> in terms of how compelling and charismatic and magnetic a person he is. I can't think of anyone to touch him. It's no. absolutely incredible. Well, Elvis was in awe of him. So, I mean, we mentioned Elvis there. You know, when when you see Elvis backstage in like late sixties, early seventies, and there's like Sammy Davis Jr., Cary Grant, you know, Tom Jones, who, who can't believe they're in the same room as Elvis. Elvis worshipped. Muhammad Ali, like yeah. he fucking loved Ali. He, he was. There's some great photographs of those two. So he, he made. I think I mentioned it on here before. He had a he had a robe made for Ali's one of his fights. Mm. Beautiful, awesome, wicked look, you know. Um, but the same bloke who made Elvis's jumpsuits made this robe for Ali. Ali wore it to one fight, lost the fight, and then being superstitious in the box, and never wore it again, obviously. But um, when someone as era defining and charismatic as Elvis. And Ali sort of owns the photograph. Yeah. You're like, fucking hell, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's Elvis Presley next to you. But same as some of his conversations with Martin Luther King that they've got archive of. Martin Luther King's the one sort of trying to get him on board with some ideas. Yeah. How are you upstaging mm. Martin Luther King? That's, that's, it, it's <laughs> remarkable, but my yeah. eyes are drawn to Ali in that shot yeah. every time. And it's like, yeah. whoa. Just, do you know what? I, I didn't realise, watching it back, because I... I to me, the, the Ali that I saw as a kid and a lot of the stuff that I tend to watch would have been sort of 1970 to sort of mid-70s, yeah, late-70s, yeah. okay. right? But when he was fighting uh, as, a, as a younger man in the 60s, he would be a cruiserweight now, wouldn't he? I mean, I don't, I don't, yeah. the weight division changed. He didn't even look that big. No, he was quite tall for the time. Yeah, he looks like sort of 15 stone, like but, 14, yeah, 15 stone. He's like six for two and a half, so... Because he fights the Henry... They show briefly about that Cooper fight. They both look like middleweights. They don't look like yeah. Coop, Cooper was a was very light for a heavyweight. He was like he was regarded as light as a heavyweight then. The other thing I had completely forgotten how intimidating Sonny Liston is, because oh, Sonny Liston gets I wouldn't say he gets forgotten about, but when people talk of Ali's great adversaries, they tend to talk of Frazier and Foreman and people like Ken Norton. Sonny, Sonny Liston, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Imagine with him. Terrifying bloke. Absolutely <laughs> petrifying. <laughs> Ali wasn't, yeah, he wasn't particularly big. 
I mean, he got bigger. He's he's big by the centimeters. One hundred and seven kgs would have been his average. One hundred and seven k. So one hundred k is two twenty one is fifteen stone ten. So at another stone. So yeah, he's about sixteen ten. But that was, that was including later on in his career as well. Yeah. You know? I, one of the blocks I found fascinating on here was that the and I didn't realize till afterwards who he was. Uh, later on the doc, I realized who he was. Is that. Uh, that, what have they called a chief justice over there? I think it is a chief justice, isn't it? On the Supreme Court, yeah. It was his sort of secretary who said that because his boss was essentially nearly blind, mm. he'd have to read stuff to him. Yeah. If you don't want to know, <laughs> look away now. Um, so there were eight, there were nine Supreme Court judges. One had been in the uh, NAACP, so he thought he had a, uh, he, he withdrew himself from the case because he thought he was, uh, he couldn't be impartial. So eight left. The, this fellow described he, he had one foot and he had one foot and four toes in jail. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like he basically he was going to jail. Uh, and this bloke read the book that Muhammad Ali talked about to his boss, and he read another book. To, I think he read another book to him as well. Um, and on the basis of that, the, the Supreme Court justice changed his verdict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then they looked into evidence, and there was a, there was a, there was. A, a miscarriage, a, a very slight technicality of a miscarriage of justice, which gave him a chance to to re-examine re, re, uh, a lot of, the, of everything else. Mm. It's almost like watching, you know, Twelve Angry Men. He, he goes from being seven one, yeah, that he's going to go. Was it seven one? I think that was yeah, and then to I think it ends up being eight nil yeah. the other way. Yeah. Uh, but then they were worried because they were like, on this technicality, it means that if you join the Nation of Islam, you can get out of the draft, and yeah. how can we fight in? in Vietnam if everyone is joining the Nation of Islam. I hadn't realised how close he was to, to going to jail. I also hadn't realised how hated he was in America mm. because mm. You know, there's a lot of revisionism now. He's, he's seen as this superstar who's, who's on the right side of history. He was absolutely loathed by, by large swathes of the American population at yeah. the time. Not even just not even the bloody cross-burning lunatics. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Most of America seemed to hate him. And... Um, like the courage to then go on a, a public speaking tour to raise money for your young family, mm. <laughs> knowing that you're hating, you're going to get the courage of him is incredible. Uh, he was, I've just checked, he was 15 stone when he fought. Okay. Um, well, there we go. But he was field. six foot two. Yeah, already, he was six so foot three. So, yeah. You know. So, quite slight. But um, I also hadn't realised that just like changing his name. Journalists are point blank refusing to refer to him as yeah. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And there's that bit, it looks like he's in front of a select committee, but I don't know what the American version would be, where he's talking to all these judges. Oh, that's... Yes. And they yeah. say, so Cassius Clay says Muhammad Ali, and they go, yep, and the defendant, Cassius Clay, says Muhammad Ali, and the defendant, Cassius Clay, he says Muhammad Ali. And then eventually they say, uh, Cassius Clay, uh, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, like, just, he's just, changed just his, his name. name. Just fucking say it. Yeah. How did... I, the press I, I, wouldn't I was, refer to him as no. Muhammad Ali. I couldn't believe on those university tours and with those idiots as well yeah. how we never got because there's a bloke who was by definition the best fighter in the world yes. right the restraint Some on the man weedy academic not to drop one on one of those fucking idiots I mean the restraint is incredible to deal with that for years and years and Good years degree in philosophy who else no no that's what it felt like it felt like there's a oh. lot of those people there yeah, just yeah. standing there giving out <laughs> oh, the yeah. abuse just Jesus. going I've got a degree well, well, oh, well actually oh I studied university and um, yeah I, I don't think it's actually a very good argument um, you, you saying that you've structured that well you, you, you studied this 
What's your research basis for that standpoint? My, my research is going on my phone on the toilet. <laughs> what was that dong the other day on question? question yeah, that's what. That's exactly who it reminded me of. Is oh. that guy there coming up with absolute bullshit in the face of? <laughs> There's some savage memes about him as well, <laughs> which he thoroughly deserves. <laughs> he deserves everything that's coming his way. Oh my god! <laughs> it is interesting to look at. You know, you talk about the ownership of Ali. Which is an mm. unfortunate phrase that that guy from the Louisville Syndicate but, comes up with, but bang on, at the bang time, on what he thought and bang on at the time as well. And then yeah. you look at the Nation of Islam and how much that was his thought processes at the time and how much he develops then when Elijah Muhammad's son takes over and takes it more towards being about traditional Islam, mm. if you like. Do you know what I, I, I endeavour to do in my life? I don't always succeed, right? And this is this is a. This is a leaf that uh, Jimmy Carr can take out of my book, right? I, I don't, I don't get it right all the time by a long way, but I try to put myself in another person's shoes, right? So when I look at, um, and this is gonna, this might piss people off, but what, I remember as a, as a kid having an argument with my dad about the IRA because he was, he was sort of everything to do with republicanism in Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. Yeah. My dad was was dead set against it, and they're terrorists and they're this and they're that, and they're 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 shooting at police and they're throwing rocks. Put yourself in the shoes of a person who's, you know, um, if you're if you're a Republican living in Northern Ireland yeah. and you can't get a job because you're a Catholic and you can't, you know, you get mistreated by the RUC because you're a Catholic and yeah. you you grow up like that. That's your experience, right? What what would you do, yeah. right? Or you just think your country got invaded and taken over? Well, yeah. So I, I said to my aunt, my man, I said, well, Dad, what if Germany had won the war, right? So what if we'd been what if we'd been occupied? Bob von Bobbins. Yeah, no, but what if there was? What if because we were Welsh, you couldn't you couldn't get a job? You you were spat out on the street. You were you know you wouldn't get a fair crack at, at, at the whip at and any sort of a trial if you had a trial. You had yeah you had a shit house and and you saw in your kids that we were, we were having a shit life because of it. I said, if someone said to you, "There's a chance to go and fucking blow up a, a Nazi train or a Nazi fucking police station," you'd do it, right? You probably, and he said, oh, yeah, that's different. I said, it's not different. I mean, it's, I'm, not, I'm not defending violence. I'm just saying, just try to put it, you, it's easy for us to say, we're only getting one side of the story. So I was thinking, imagine being, you imagine being uh, a black young man in the 60s in America, and then suddenly Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam come along and they yeah. say, listen, yeah, yeah. fuck the turn the other cheek stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not us. We're not put up with this shit anymore. They are demonstrably evil. You just think, I'll have a bit of this. Well, yeah, and if all your experiences during your upbringing have been of white people being evil, yeah. you're going to go, yeah. And it's all, I, find, I did know that stuff about his old man, like, very good artist. I mean, some of those bloody paintings his old man did in the churches. But So you're sort of, what they're saying, you're going to fight for America. His, his America would have been Christian, which, you know, yeah. he said, I, I, I never saw... You never saw a black Jesus or black angels. It was, it was everything was white, you know. Mm. So he didn't feel particularly Christian. He didn't feel particularly American. You couldn't vote. You couldn't drink at the water fountain. You couldn't. You couldn't sit in this part of the bus. And and, and there became, I didn't realize that the sort of struggle between the sort of peaceful protest of Martin Luther King, yes, and then people like Elijah Muhammad, and then later sort of Malcolm X saying, no, 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 bullshit. We're not. We're not having any more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're if you're an angry, a quite rightfully angry young black bloke in the 60s in America yeah what are you going to do I know what I'd do I'd be straight in the bloody nation of Islam you know I, I, you, you just would be I found, I found the whole thing absolutely fascinating I didn't, I didn't realise that like I said that power struggle I tell you something else whatever else you might be Louis Farrakhan 
He's in his late seventies in this. He might be eighty in this. Yeah, yeah. This is this is about seven years ago. This this doc. Yeah, it's been on online for a, four or five years. Bloody, hell, he looks good for his age, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he looks fucking amazing. I mean, all right, I'm a white devil, but I can still appreciate a good-looking. <laughs> Do you know what though? The sixties, in particular. I could read about the 60s forever. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it's the most incredible decade. Yeah, when you when you think about the, from popular culture terms, the music as well. Like when you compare Woodstock, say, to how youngsters were enjoying themselves in 1960, it, it doesn't bear any comparison at all. That change happens so quickly. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's Perry Como to the Beatles, isn't it? It's the same. It's incredible. I tell you what, mate, t- talking... This is 70s, though. You'd be unsurprised to hear, right? I was watching this, and it would be remiss of me not to mention that quarry fight when he fought quarry. Yes. Have you ever seen so many well-dressed oh, blokes? Some yeah. of I those hats. The envy with that. The outfits, oh. the cars. I thought, fuck. Oh, yes, he was please. brilliantly dressed. He never, ever, oh, yeah. ever looked bad. His clothes were always fantastic. And I love the really moddy stuff he used to wear in the 60s and then the suits with the thin ties. He looked really cool in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he's tremendously he's handsome and well. as well, isn't he? So. Which helps. So clothes are just going to look good on him. He even looks good when he's training in those, like, grey sort of sweatshirts. He just looked cool. But a grey sweatshirt on me would make me look like a reasonably flabby, hairy white well, man. It just makes me look like a mo- it just makes me look like I'm walking to a video shop if I were. <laughs> exactly, you're going to blockbuster. <laughs> I, I, look, I look like a road protester. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a look. I don't know when I first became aware of Ali when I was ten, probably. It's mm. a look that has remained incredibly cool and iconic now for well, I think I certainly years. had in university the big black and white Muhammad Ali poster. I wonder how many Athena's. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, Neil Lifer one of him um, standing over yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sonny Liston. Yeah, look, there, there are bits of Ali that I don't like as a person, and bits that get glossed mm. over loads. So the way he treated Frasier later on, yeah, the yeah, constant true. references to Uncle Tom's, the bit with Foreman where he portrays him as being too black. I think he had a rumble in the jungle. I think he had a cruel streak. Yeah, so I, I think that they they mention that in there, mate. They mention that in there. Someone says in the doc, he is very charismatic, and he is, I'll paraphrase, he is very charismatic, he is, he is this immensely quotable bloke, but he's on the colour of the fight. You, you don't get to be heavyweight champion of the world without being having a mean streak. Yes, yeah, being they a, do say Being that, a yeah. bad person. Yeah, you know? so, well, absolutely, you've got to be a nasty bastard. To... The Fraser stuff, yeah. Do you know what I watched? I've only just thought of this now when you said that. Yeah. The Uncle Tom stuff was, was obviously bang out of order. Yes. I wonder how much of that goes back to Joe Lewis coming out and basically accusing him of being uh, un-American and unpatriotic and all this sort of stuff. And he must have thought, fuck you, mate. Oh, there was plenty of stuff where that phrase would have been appropriate, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was just an, uh, a classic way of getting in his head prior to a big fight that Ali yeah. was very And he wasn't about. an Uncle Tom. I mean, that's that, he, did, he, did that, he did that deliberately to be, yeah, to be cruel and, and, to, and to put him off his fight, and I think it worked. But, I mean, um, it wasn't really a warts and all documentary about him, was no, it? No, no, not at all. I think there were other ones that you can kind of add in that add new ones. But this period of the Nation of Islam, it gets glossed over a lot, or people have their perceptions of it, don't they? And I think that yeah. going in-depth on it was just fa- it's a fascinating bit for me. Also, the last five minutes where they discuss interpretations of Ali and how they've changed. Yes. So in the 60s... Um, traditional Islam was seen as the friendly, oh, acceptable one, and the Nation of Islam was seen as the one that Americans were to be worried about. Whereas post nine eleven, traditional Islam 
uh, is the one that's you know criticised and prejudiced against, and the Nation of Islam is seen as a sort of cuddly domestic version, yeah. which hadn't occurred to me. And the thing with Ali, because he's such a totemic figure, and he just straddles the the twentieth century for about forty years, he's really, really genuinely important. You can interpret so many things. You, you you can kind of use him as a lightning rod for so many different things. And there's a bit where his daughter says, you know, I used to go on these tours and I used to cry and say, oh, please don't go. And he'd say, well, I'm your daddy, but I'm also a daddy to the world. And she'd say, no, as soon as you leave the house, you're not my daddy, you're Muhammad Ali. The pressure on him, which never abated because... He was loved. He was absolutely loved in Britain as well. I like the bit where she went through the list of all of her siblings and step-siblings. Yeah. He used to make them all meet up for holidays, which obviously pissed off all of the mothers quite a lot. That was a great insight. And he can't can't have had that much formal education, I don't think. Well, that's what I thought was interesting as well. The bit where they say that he started concentrating on boxing when he was 12. So you talk about those idiots at universities who are trying to get one up on Muhammad Ali by being... Clever, in inverted commas. You're basically trying to punch intellectually down from their own perceptions yes. to a guy who probably didn't concentrate in school from the age of 12 because he was trying to win the Olympics as a boxer. And now he's trying to yeah. do a speaking tour to earn money because he's been banned from a fight. Because he's such a sharp mind. Yeah, but he, right? he doesn't get outdone. That's what's interesting. He's got such a sharp mind that within that year of just learning on his feet with that stuff. Yes. They said the difference in him at the end of that that speaking tour on the beginning was vast. What's interesting is looking at some of the archive, the, the one he does with Frost, the archive interview with Frost. Oh, yeah. I, I was watching that and I thought, imagine that in our days, right, on TV, where you've got someone who is saying that white people are the devil and you've got a deliberately provocative interviewer. It would just be people shouting. Yeah. But it's, it's really yes, on yes. both sides, you know, Frost is being very, you know, calm in what he's saying, and very, but very forceful in what he's saying. And Ali's saying, well, you think I'm going to come on your TV show and change my actual opinions because I'm on a TV show with you? I'm not. Well, I had um, Parkinson's, uh, you'd be surprised to hear this is Audible book, right? Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But read by Parkinson, which is a fantastic listen, right? Or I, I imagine it'd be a You're fantastic like that Supreme Court judge, you just loved up things read to I you. do, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Ben sat by the side of you, putting on a Parkinson <laughs> accent. It's such, a, and he's there's a fella who bloody hell interviewed the entire twentieth century, yeah. right, just yeah. with everybody. And he says, hands down, and it's not even close for him. Who was, who was your your favourite interview? He says Muhammad Ali. Yeah. So the interviews with I did with Muhammad Ali because, and they weren't, they were, there was no quarter asked or given in those things. But like you said, there was, they weren't screaming and shouting at each other. And he, imagine being sat like three feet from him and having that intense. Conversation with him. Hey, Clough, I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that in Ali's day, there was such cachet to being heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Yeah. Which I don't think really exists. You were the biggest sports in the world, though. Yeah. You? you were bigger than Ronaldo or Messi now. You, yeah. you were the, the person that everybody knew. There was just one belt down there? Yeah, one the belt, WBA, I think it was. It would be WBA. Yeah, the WBC comes in later on in, the, a, in his career. Yeah, a, a kind of fame that is this difficult to achieve now. Interesting what he did when he. Because through being in the nation of Islam, he's saying where where the heavyweight champ would normally go to London and Paris, he was going to Africa. He was going to these places yeah. where even that. I mean, what a thing to do to shine a light on that because no one was going there then. Your your big famous sports people weren't going to third world countries. 
they were treading red carpets, like you said, you know, in the Western world. They'd be going to Paris and London. Because if you are heavyweight champion of the world, it's completely justified and justifiable for you to spend time with your family and get your head down in training and box. And that's what most of them do. But he was obviously driven by this burning sense of injustice. Well, yeah. So he just, I mean, what a life. You know, if if you want a life full of drama and incident, and obviously, especially with the boxing, he, he paid the price later on because he carried on too long, and his they think he had Parkinson's in the ring. And certainly, I've seen a Parkinson's son interview with him from about 1984. You know, the, the Parkinson's symptoms are, are clear and obvious, and he was still mm. fighting until 1980. And when he lit the torch, the, the Olympic flame, Atlanta in '96, you know, he's got a pronounced tremble. So in terms of in terms of his his boxing career, which did carry on too long, and it's such a shame that no one in nineteen seventy six said you need to you need to quit while you're ahead, Mohammed, and devote your life to other stuff. I'm sure he was skint though, mate. He had so many hangers on. Yes, uh, yeah, that's true. He was yeah. seen as a cash cow for you know. As I'm, he's not the first boxer that's been ripped off by everybody. No, you know what I mean, and he it loved very it. Sad that he I... also loved boxing. That's the thing, and it would have been really horrible yeah. for him as the world champion. To have had his belt taken off him. Mm. But you watch those last couple of fights and you just think, oh, Christ. Yeah. You know, what are you doing? I mean, at one stage, to try and get around the band, they were considering having him box on a, on a Boeing 757 with 200 yeah, yeah, fans. Yeah. Imagine being one of the 200. Great. Oh, my God. Imagine the turbulence. Yeah. 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 <laughs> ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. There must be. Places we you know where they're always having these sort of oh we go to Saudi do we go to international you know, waters yeah international waters on a cruise ship oh what's a great thing the other day it bends into his geography yeah there's a place there's three places in the world that are they're called they're, what are they called they're basically unclaimed by anybody let's get them distant pod island one is between yes. one's between Serbia and Croatia and there's two I'm, I'm not taking over land there I'll be, I'll, <laughs> yeah. for yeah. me because that would be a mistake because one's the original border. Which is the River Danube, right? But then, then they straighten the Danube in the sort of late eighteen hundreds to make it easier to navigate. Uh, so then, we all find when it was all part of the one country. When that country broke up, there was the sort of pre-Danube border and the and the and the post-Danube border, and they're not the same. So, so there's a bit of Serbia for or one Croatia country, you want us to take over. Well, but there's like four bits of, I can't which way, which way around this, there's like four bits of Serbia and Croatia and a bit of Croatia and Serbia. Yeah. But the way that it works is if if the one country agreed to this border, they'd have to give up this part of their own border, this, their own country and, the, and vice versa. So there's a, there's an area, which is quite a sizable area, bigger than the Vatican City. Terra nullius. Terra nullius, that's the word. And there's, so there's one there. Which is claimed by nobody, but is heavily guarded on, on all around all sides. But no one lives there. Quite a beautiful looking part of the world as well. In the Danube Valley, have a look at that. Yeah, it just it it, it feels fraught with we shouldn't take it over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Well, um, I, I don't want do- to fly the distant pod flag there. <laughs> if they're so bloody ready for it, let the Swiss do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, if we've got Swiss backing, <laughs> financially and. There's one in Antarctica. There is one in Antarctica. I'm just having a look at that now. That feels more like we're not going to get beaten up. Uh, most of Mary Birdland. That's that one. sounds quite Welsh anyway. Let's have it. And there's one somewhere else. There's, there's some in the Egypt-Sudan border, which again for me... There we me, go. Eastern Sahara, yeah. Um, yeah. There's Out of there. those, I'm going Antarctica. Okay. Okay? And apologies yeah. if you know I'm going to cause issues there. I think we'll be better off there. <laughs> 
than anywhere else. Oh, fight the good luck, Don King. <laughs> but the whole thing, mate, I just... It's brilliant. There's, there's some docs you watch. It's nice when you, when you see a, someone that you think you know a lot about and you find out a lot of new stuff about Exactly. Them. It's great when they really look at the stuff outside of the sport. So of this, you see in an hour and a half, you probably see only see about 15 minutes of boxing. If that. But that whole period where he can't box, the whole Nation of Islam thing, I've read quite a few books around this and quite a few books on Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, but there's still stuff in this that I didn't know or understand. It's a great primer on, on the 1960s. And if you can watch this and not want to know more about the 1960s, yes, then I'm afraid. I love his ex-wife that they talked there, who basically takes credit for everything. Yeah. she's very funny. And he's still. Hell no, I won't go. That was one of mine. Uh, but if I'm going to be, that was one of mine. Yeah. Um, Robert Hope, that was me. <laughs> that was me. Angelo came around and said, "Why don't you just slacken the ropes off a little bit? Uh, let him take some kidney shots." What? 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 Are you sure? What you? you sure you what did you? that? Rumble in the jungle. That was my idea. Um, <laughs> Ali Boumaye, yeah, yeah, that me. <laughs> that was mine. His daughter's character. So, so his daughter's talking. It's his. It's the sister that boxes. Isn't Layla it? was the one sister. who fought. Yeah, so it's Layla's sister. Um, as in, they got the same mum. Did he have um, any sons? Were all girls? Yes, he did have. Um, he did have a son, Muhammad Ali Junior. You imagine we talk about you know following your father's footsteps is always tough. Yes. Imagine being Muhammad Ali Jr. I mean, it's, it's just call him Gary. <laughs> can you be the best sportsman in the world? No. No, no I can't. Can you be the most no, charismatic no. man history has ever known? Um. Frank Ali Jr., can, can I be called that for a bit? I don't want to be called Muhammad Ali Jr. <laughs> it's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So this is the bit where the Patreon folk get to disappear. Uh, You are released into the wild of... Advertising. Yeah. You get to enjoy, you get the privilege of enjoying six adverts back to back in this next little area because you made a decision. No more decisions have consequences, my friends. Your consequences are could be allied carpets. I don't know what you're going to get. There'll be, there'll be some kind of, it could be <laughs> George Street value, value. It could be hyper value value. It could Hyper-value be trade sent to Wales. They've got it at Leaks, the out-of-town department store. George Street Furnishers. Arthur Llewellyn Jenkins. It could be any of those. Are these all host-read commercials? <laughs> yeah, yeah, George Street Furnishers, you owe some money now. I, I don't think Hyper Value exists anymore, does it? It hasn't existed for decades. I don't know. Hyper Value Value. <laughs> Ask the man from Mod Plan. <laughs> I wonder what she's doing now. The one who turned around next to a UPVC double glazed window and say, "Ask the man from, from Mod Plan." I prefer it a bit more honest. I said, "You buy one? Should you get one free?" <laughs> that one. There's a sale on TFS. So hurry, hurry, hurry! That was actually him. What was the buy one was get it? one free bloke? That was his company. Was it? Oh, I love it! it I love it when uh, <laughs> the owner of a company says, "I want to be in the advert." Oh, absolutely, I own it. I'm doing it. There used to be one on S4C. For a shop called Garems. 
and he would so farm equipment something like that and um, there he was blustery days in the car park his ties loose and over you Gareth and Mir at the end of the shop you Garems Garems and then it was just that Garems Garems say it twice and over you Gareth and Mir at the end of the shop you Garems 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 so good they named it twice Garems Garems all the scandal and the vice I love it I don't know what Gar- I wonder if Garems is still going I don't know I think he, he owes us some money if they are still going because it was Westfield <laughs> Because it was Westwood, it would have been everything. It would have been like... A one-stop shop. <laughs> you got the lot, yeah? Like a shop on a campsite. Hey, seeds, feed, yeah. hose, it rakes, have been shovels. Feed. It would have been feed per sale. Tractors, tractor tires. Videos, fuel. Prit stick. Red and diesel. Milk. <laughs> Red diesel. Yeah. Shirts. Yeah. Um, Garem sells garden machinery and it's in croissants. Of course it does. Does <laughs> it still exist? Uh, Garem's Garden Machinery 2020. Oh, you owe us some money, state. guys. We've got to be in for a free loan. Because he was from, he was from, because obviously dad's from croissants, so he sounded like dad. None of you got a mirror, but here, no shop, you. Garem's. Garem's. You'll never beat Lee Byrne doing that gold. Oh, amazing. Oh, he's uh, a man in a professional rugby era earning serious money doing an advert for gold. Those adverts for gold were weird. I just think, I know gold is valuable. <laughs> yeah, I've got it. Blowing my theory that acting's a piece of piss out of it. It does really, well. doesn't it? Do you know what? The, oh, go on. Listen, the producer of this thing I'm writing had the fucking audacity to say to me the other day. Please say, get an acting coach. Yes. Yeah. Fucking amazing. <laughs> Ah. He said, have you ever thought about acting? I said, fuck off, an acting coach. <laughs> no, no, seriously, have you ever no, thought, have you about thought about no. have, have you thought about... I'm going to say it again, because <laughs> I'm passing on a message. My pen's over the paper, watch. I will teach myself acting in the way that I taught myself brain surgery <laughs> and how to use a chainsaw. Do I want acting lessons? Suck my balls. Acting lessons. I don't think you need them if that's any consolation. Thank you, Ray. That, yeah, that, that took a long time to come from both of us, really. I was a producer. <laughs> we haven't said yet, Steph, to be fair. No, I know, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've been told by the producer <laughs> to reinforce this. I see. But Bins does not need acting lessons. Thank you. Acting coaching, yes. Acting lessons, yeah. no. Acting arm around the shoulder. Yeah. He needs not just, to act. Yeah, just yeah. Exactly. If you couldn't act, that would be great. If you could live this more. What are you fucks more on the sort of writing side of things? What? <laughs> you consider having husband lessons, Mike? <laughs> Tony, those pal. Thank you very much. <laughs> the other day, what did I say? What day? What, what, go and ask Kelly what I did the other day. My my attritional approach to being a husband means that Kelly is too tired to leave me. <laughs> Lovely bunch of flowers delivered to work, of course. Did you? Burbins is having an affair. <laughs> I couldn't be asked, honestly. I'd rather be a fucking eunuch than have an affair. That's all I need. More shit. A eunuch. No, I don't need them. Cut them off. <laughs> um, fuck all good to me. A fucking eunuch. What good's that to me? What good's that to me? <laughs> right, you people can disappear. And you'll have some adverts and then you'll have the book for this week. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. 
Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Book time to wrap things off for everybody. It is my choice this week. And I was going to choose a book about swimming, but I haven't finished it. So I want to finish it because it's actually really good. It's called Waterlog, uh, Swimmer's Journey Through Britain by Roger Deakin. But I'll choose that another time because I haven't got through it all and... You know, when you kind of, if I did it on the pod now, I wouldn't finish it. Mm. So as an incentive, I'm going to leave that till next time. So instead, I got really annoyed by that article I saw you tweeting about, Al, which was the um, guy calling the Welsh language moribund. Oh, yeah, by the the critic. Yeah, as in the magazine, the critic. So I thought I would pull out a book that is at my level of Welsh. Um, So it is Alan Ar Arth, Ar Game Fawr. So it's Alan the Bear. And the big yeah, match. Yeah. Um, we've done James Hook's book. Alina Ralph. Alina Ralph. We've done James Hook's kids' book. We've done um, Gordon Darcy's kids' book. My, Mike's done both of those. And I've, uh, my eldest has gone through James's second book really fast. So I'll do that at some point. But this is it's a story about Alan, who is a bear, going to the big match at the Millennium Stadium. So he's obviously a rugby player. Is he playing? Well... This is. I have a lot of issues with this book. So, the language is not one of those issues. The issues I have are they are playing... The the Wales team appears to be made up of uh, a lion, a hippo... Different species. Yeah, a rhino and an alligator. And they are playing against a team who, let's be honest, are England, wearing white shirts with pink roses, and they are bulldogs. (laughs) So, initially, we know where we're coming from here. A crocodile's got a serious advantage. Looks like they're, they're basically the playing pack. against a BMP rally. <laughs> this is what it feels like, yeah? They're playing against people whose English um, defence who are on Twitter defending <laughs> Easy L15. jokes about the Holocaust. <laughs> so So Alan goes to watch it, he's in full kit. Mm. Then what happens is Alan goes onto the pitch and starts playing. He joins in the game, which I'm not fucking mm, having no. for starters. But he gets on. He's he's, he's quite good. Which a bear, mate. What's his natural position? He's he's, he's, he's a bear. He's, he's, he's a massive it's and a terrifying crash, crash ball specialist. <laughs> so uh, by the time you get to page nine, Alan has really engaged with the game. Royth Alan, Weddy Scoriokais, and Bafonriad Guich. So Alan had scored a try. Great performance. Great performance. Then his dad shouts from the crowd, Alan atops in, writing, Weddy Scorio Kais, ear team Arash. Okay. Alan, you fickle. Yeah. Yes. You've, you've, scored a, you've scored a try for the wrong team. Yeah. You can't fucking do that. No. Okay. Yeah, you yeah, can't. It, it, no. It's not an own try. No, not such thing. So re- reading this book to my kids confused the shit out of them. You're then Alan. Becomes quite introverted, walks off the pitch, (laughs) goes back into the crowd. He's told off by the referee. He's told off by his dad. There's people on Twitter giving him shit. Comes back in six months, starving. But but his performance. Uh, His dad continues to hammer him in the crowd, which seems bad. Uh, Roy, Alan and Drist Young. 
Okay, Alim was very sad. Urth ir game uh, Al Dechrai. Hmm. I'll Dechrai. I'll Once the game restarted. Okay, he wants the game restarted. Yeah. Then um, a cheetah and a hippo both get injured. Cheetahs on the wing, surely. Despite the fact that Alan has, you know, tangibly fucked up, yeah. they invite him back onto the pitch um, to join in the game so they can carry on because they've run out of players. Was this written in the early 90s when all of our best players had gone north? <laughs> <laughs> Is he now the head of the WIU? <laughs> That's how it ends. He's in charge. He gets an administrative yeah. position. He's got an administrative position, <laughs> talks about how an injury prevented him from making it to the very top. He's a one club man. Yeah. And yeah. he's been in charge of that hotel on Westgate Street. That's how it ends. Um, they win the Grand Slam because he scores a proper try. And if you think it is a moribund language, you are a fucking thicker. Yes, I'll tell you one thing as well. If you do speak minority language, it doesn't have to be Welsh. Yes. And you have arguments about its use and about its uh, purpose with people who speak majority languages or you know some of the main ones uh, do read Language Death by David Crystal okay because it it will provide you with every single argument you wished you'd had when you'd had these discussions in my case at university or maybe online or something because David Crystal is a linguist who's not a Welsh speaker but he, he's he works at Bangor University and so he often uses Welsh as an example. And honestly, it was revelatory, this book. Because, I mean, if you were discussing Cornish or Breton or, Manx. you know, Manx, any of, any of those languages aren't spoken by very many people anymore. Because he, he makes a very, very good argument for how all languages are, have sort of equal value and it's an intellectual tragedy as well as a cultural tragedy when a language dies. Mm. And I wish I'd read this book when I was 19, because it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, yeah, it's not a sports book, but Language Beth, Death by David Crystal. Me and you soon make three weeks. Three oithenos. Yeah. Three oithenos, you get to your Alan Arath in the car. Yeah, we'll just read Alan Arath and, um, yeah. and Language Death. Mm. Yeah, those are our two book choices for this week. 